Greetings, all ladies and metal gents, and welcome to the podcast version of Tales, Tales from Outer, from outer space. space. In this episode, we'll be doing TFOS 1290 to 1303. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. Tales from Outer Space 1290. Story number one Reforged, written by Mercury the Dealer. Everyone fears humans. Some fear them for their mighty ships. Some for the incomprehensible technology. Many are terrified by the idea of mixing flesh and metal like they do. Those are all good reasons to fear them, but they pale in comparison to the true nightmare fuel. How did they get here? Many forget it, but humans started like all other species do. They got fire, they forged metal, they waged war, and eventually went to space. Then the Republic invaded Earth. It wasn't the worst thing that could happen, not by a long shot. The Republic wasn't hyper-militarist or xenophobic. They were just a tad expansionist and thought the humans would be great citizens. The humans disagreed. In the beginning, the invasion was completely one-sided. The Republic had better technology and the benefit of surprise. They were putting the humans on fire. Winning would require humanity to have an uncountable number of bodies and an infinite will to fight. They had both. The things humans did to defend their planet are unspeakable. Parents died in fields only to be replaced by their children the next day. Millions upon millions of casualties everywhere, only to deny the Republic for just a bit longer in that senseless war. It all seemed in vain until they discovered something. The advanced prosthetics. Throughout the galaxy, the ability to replace arms and legs with mechanical counterparts was very common, but it was used as a temporary solution until the person could get a biological replacement. Humans did the opposite. Millions upon millions of human soldiers had their bodies modified and reforged with metallic shells meant for war. Some of the soldiers even volunteered. The Republic could not win anymore. Their soldiers were scarred for life by all the atrocities that they had committed in the name of freeing humanity. Seeing humans replacing their bodies with metal just to kick them out was the last straw. For whatever was left of the Republic's morale, the Republic expected that the humans would just stay on the newly destroyed planet and rebuild for a few centuries. Maybe they would even join the Republic one day in a more peaceful manner. Three decades after the strategic retreat, a human ship appeared in Republic territory. Then another. And another. Then fifty more. In only three decades, humanity had not only rebuilt the planet, but also prepared for revenge. They did not need food or water. They did not need to rest or stop. Humanity had reforged itself into a war machine with the sole purpose of destroying those who wronged them. In three years, the Republic had been shattered by human fleets. Even their best pilots couldn't defeat the humans. How are they supposed to outmaneuver someone's ship when they are their ship? Humanity eventually retreated into their territory. They gently asked to be left alone, and all major nations were wise enough to agree. So why should you be the humans? 
It is not because they are technologically advanced, or because their fleets could shatter half the galaxy. It is because when humanity is put under fire, they don't burn like we would. They just reforge themselves. End of story. Story number two. Written by 6E6F6E2D626969C6172279. Jumping in turn nine eight, said the engineering officer. Marlard, I am registering hundreds. No, thousands of. The panicked voice of the tactical officer was cut off as the last chance shuddered and the intense barrage. For a few seconds, it was utter chaos. Then there was a brief moment of silence before the siren started to wail. Robot! Reeled the warlord, dragging himself up off the floor. Jump drives are out, thrusters are. Ice apart is critical. Shields down, weapons at five percent. We're being hailed, said the communications officer. It's a Terran frequency. Cowards! They must have laid a trap, said the warlord, steering. I want us fully functional as soon as possible. Prioritize weapons and turn off that damn siren. The warlord straightened his uniform and stood facing the forward view screen. He accepted the hail. I am Specialist Garcia of the Terran Federation. I know who you are, warlord. You are no soldier, said the warlord derisively. And yet your ship is crumpled, said the specialist. The rest of the great fleet jumps as you talk and talk. Soon your worlds will burn. Ah, yes, the, the lost fleet. It'll keep the, the storytellers busy for years. The warlord made to cancel the transmission and then stopped. Lost feet? What do you mean? Even now they advance on your research station. They'll arrive in formation and... Uh, the research station is, in fact, uh, a star, interrupted the specialist. It was redesignated shortly before the <clears throat> industrial accidents on the largest of your orbital shipyards. She shook her head sadly. The fleet will arrive in formation, yes, um, inside a star. No one will ever hear from them again. You planned this, said the warlord, shocked at his total loss of eleven ships and their crew. Indeed. We estimated with 99% confidence that you would interfere with our plans for the sector. 91% chance that you would eventually invade our space. The specialist took a sip of water. If it is any consolation, we also estimated non-negligible chance that you would win. Was the loss of your pathetic expeditionary force part of your plan? spat the warlord. They could not even muster a defense. Three of your finest ships destroyed. I can see how you'd make that mistake, said the specialist. The drive signatures are easily confused, but I'm afraid you've destroyed a colony ship and two mining ships. If your military is as effective as you say it is, and I see no reason to doubt your competence... Then you are responsible for the deaths of 18,275 Terran civilians. I very much doubt that we'll find any survivors. If we do, it would be... She paused, taking a moment to straighten her glasses. Inconvenient. The warlord stood speechless. There will be sanctions, said the specialist. You've tried that twice already and failed, said the warlord, pacing from side to side. Yes, quite by design. Do you imagine we will fail a third time? The specialist gestured at someone out of shot, and the screen suddenly changed. It showed a small child playing with a toy spaceship. Her voice could only be heard asking if they were excited about the upcoming adventure. The child nodded and laughed excitedly. 
We have 24,000 hours of footage to show before the vote, she said quietly. And we have this. The screen showed the debris field in space. The expanding cloud of green and grey silent accusation. It zoomed in a hundred times and there was the same toy spaceship. Blackened and broken, turning lazily amidst the wreckage. You put that there, said the warlord, accusingly. Maybe we did. Maybe we didn't. Either way, we estimate with 97% confidence these sanctions will precipitate a crisis on your homeworld. The regime will fall, and about a third of the population of the ensuing civil war. More importantly, almost all of your cultural artifacts will be lost. You're monsters, said the warlord. That is not how we will appear, said the specialist on screen again. We will send aid, humanitarian aid, and help establish a new consensus amongst your people, one a little friendlier to our interests. The warlord sat down heavily and closed his eyes. We will take the colonies that border our space, of course, continued the specialist, holding her hands on the table. Reparations of sorts. What will you do with them? said the warlord bitterly. We will flood them with our own people. Extend invitations across the galaxy. Credits will pour in to promote all sorts of cultural events, although your kind will be, um, discouraged from celebrating their own traditions, she smiled. We estimate with a 93% confidence the population will be assimilated within two generations. If not, uh, we have contingency plans. Your other colonies will be shunned. They will soon start to fail. Our bankers will lend money and foreclose when the debts cannot be repaid. Of course, we will provide generous assistance to those wishing to relocate to Terran worlds. And one of me and my crew, said the warlord dejectedly. Ah, I believe amongst your kind it is the highest honor to die in battle. Am I correct? You would give us that, said the warlord, rising to his feet once more. There was a look of incredulity mixed with hope in his face. Please open a ship-wide broadcast. Have everyone on the bridge assemble. The specialist stood too. Attention, crew of the last chance. Despite the atrocities that you have been a party to, I offer you honor in death. I only ask one thing. Use an escape pod, she said, leaning forward, and send me your warlord alive. The specialist watched impassively as the expression on the warlord's face changed from horror to swiftly rage. As he turned and tore out the throat of the approaching bridge officer, she took another sip of water as he leveled his rifle at two more officers, gunning them down easily. But he was soon overwhelmed. Some minutes later, a single pod was launched from the stricken ship. It was intercepted and, on inspection, contained the warlord's body, bloodied but still alive. The last chance of scanners registered 18,275 tiny pinpricks of light, then they registered nothing at all. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1291. Story number two. Grey Area, written by Algy Father Anthracite. Well now, that's a bit of a grey area, said the portly human behind the desk. What do you mean, grey area? I asked. Technically, those chemicals you want to offload on my station are perfectly legal, began the human. Then what is the problem? I snapped. He continued as if I hadn't spoken. But we happen to know that at least two of them are what we would call precursor chemicals, he finished. 
What is a precursor chemical? I asked. And why does that mean I can't unload my cargo? A precursor chemical is a chemical used as an ingredient to make something else, which is more dangerous. Drugs or explosives, for example. And the vast majority of your cargo can be unloaded. No problem. However, in order to unload containers 77542 and 56409, we are going to need some uh, additional paperwork. The human leans forward and rubs several of his manipulated digits in a circular pattern. What forms must I fill out? I asked. The human sighs deeply and then falls back into the chair. He mumbles under his breath for a moment. He taps the fleshy flaps that cover his speech orifice with a single digit. I'll tell you, Captain. I'll take care of the paperwork and I'll even expedite and unload. And in exchange, you can give me a little something. You know, for the effort. He bears his fangs at me in what is supposed to be an endearing human gesture. But only puts me on edge. What do you want for this effort? I asked, still confused about the whole problem. Oh, maybe a few hundred credits. I got to give a little to the longshoreman, too. Let's call it 750 credits. Suddenly, I understood. He was a petty bureaucrat. It didn't matter what race he was from. They were all the same. A document processing fee. With an expedited unloading. Yep, that's the thing, he said with a smile. Done, I said. Compared to some of the busier hubs, a 750 credit bribe was practically pocket change. We quickly made the transaction. He gave me a document and told me to hand it to the dockmaster. Our business concluded, and I walked out the office. Gregor how are you? Sit, sit, whiskey? The portly human raised his chair to greet me, pointing at a small couch I could comfortably sit in. I waved off the offer beverage as I sat. Hello, Dean. I'm good, and you? Good, good. My boy's just started college. House feels empty without him. Sorry, uh, what brings you in today? The human settled back into his seat as I spoke. I have some cargo I need to unload with our papers, I say. Side job, he asks. I'm just here to refuel, officially. Nothing too hot, right? You know the rules, right? No slaves, no weapons. It's some kind of knockoff electronics without rights management hardware, I told him. He was crooked, but he wasn't completely bent. He smiles and types on his keyboard for a few minutes. He hands me a printout and says, Here you go, just give this to the Jonesy boys. They'll take care of it. Thanks, sir. You want the usual payment? I asked, slipping the form into the pouch. Nah, we've been doing it since you started giving us good word of mouth. This one's on me. I appreciate it. The human exposes his fangs again. Well, that's very generous of you. Uh, thanks, I said. Hey, I take care of my people, and you're one of my people. We stood up, and he bowed his head twice in a farewell gesture of my people. I returned the gesture and waved as I turned and left. What's going on here? The portly human roared as he walked into the chaos of the dock. Everyone suddenly stopped. Hello, Dean. Don't see you on the docks too often, I said. All over the open area around the dock of my ship, my crew and Dean's longshoremen were fighting with some Verlin a lizard race. When Dean had bellowed so loudly, everyone stopped. The longshoremen had been handedly overpowering the Verin despite being only two-thirds the size of the Verins. The humans were considerably denser and much stronger. Okay, please explain, Dean said as his man rounded up every one of the docks who was fighting. 
This gentle being believes I've been running unmanifested cargo and charging him for the fuel. Oh, does he? Dean asked. He turned to look up into the face of the Varen leader. Got any proof? We are attempting to investigate when we were attacked by the Gebs and your men, the Varen said. Investigate? You tried to open cargo on the dock? Dean asked. Yes, to verify the contents of shipping containers. Jonesy, take these guys to the brig. I'll deal with them later, Dean said. Jonesy and his men led the Varen away. As for you, we'll do full inventory. Gotta keep up appearances, Dean said. He leaned closer and whispered, My men won't find anything that isn't on the pull of loading. Don't worry. So, uh, trespassing of restricted areas, attempted theft, assault and battery. Tell me why I shouldn't hand you for the Federated Guards, Dean said. The Varen leader hissed and said, We were trying to ascertain if we were being cheated. I'm justified in my action. Oh, that may be true in Varen Station. But this is a human Concordian station. You've committed serious crimes. Dean sat in a chair opposite the cell holding the Varen crew. You could face hefty fines and serious jail time. And before you start crying about it, my men are inventorying the shipment as we speak. If anything is found, I'll let you know. But even if we do find something, that doesn't excuse your behavior. Call the magistrate, and we will get this dealt with quickly. The Baron Reader replied. Oh, there's no magistrate on the station, but he is scheduled to visit in a month or so. Until then, you can call off in here. Dean stood up and adjusted his suit coat. He started to walk away. What? There must be a faster way to resolve this. Dean stopped and turned back. He looked thoughtful for a moment and then said, Well, I think this little kerfuffle of yours might fall into a grey area. End of story. Story number one. Solanaci, written by Echoing Cascade. The Uniplanitia Garden was the largest collection of flora in the sector, and as such was visited by sentients of many species on a daily basis. Droz was a new guard and barely a week on the job under his belt. In that short time, he had managed to annoy his boss and ridicule himself in front of his peers. He had called for a life-or-death emergency when he spotted a bipedal walking in the nightshade wing of the garden without a protective suit. Once the medical team, senior guards, and his boss showed up, it turned out the bipedal in question was an old man, Gyra, the gardener, walking stick in hand, making the rounds. He was a death roller who was uniquely skilled to tend to that wing, since nearly all of the deadly plants hailed from his home world, of Earth. After apologizing profusely, Droz was assigned to the nightshade wing, a beat no one light since you had to do it in a hazard suit or risk painful death. Droz had started to get used to patrolling in the suit. The beat was relaxing once you got used to it, especially since very few people went to the trouble of visiting the wing. The mandatory suit was a great deterrent. In the few cases visitors did show up, old man Gyra was a purse polite and professional a guide as he had ever seen. He couldn't help but chuckle inwardly as the gardener started every explanation with his trademark, This here you see. But today, something felt wrong. Four visitors were about to enter the wing when they looked. Odd, not in the way that they dressed, but in the way that they moved. Droz called it in. 
He would much rather risk further ridicule than his or Gyro's lives. He was given a simple reply. Let the old man deal with it. We'll be there in 15 minutes. Don't get in his way. Every fiber of his being told him to do something, but before he could move, old man Gyro winked at him and locked him in the corridor leading to the wing. He had watched helplessly as the gardener led the four on a tour of the flora of Earth. Chaosokas was a Mysoran, seven feet tall, reptilian predators. He led a small crew of highly skilled thieves and assassins. When he heard of the Uniplanitia Garden, he saw it as a perfect way to use their thieving skills to improve their assassination tools. Dozens of deadly toxins, so rare, no one would have any antidotes or countermeasures for them in place, and only a token security team guarding them. Almost too easy. He and his men had been following the old man who kept explaining facts about the many plants. Probably some kind of genetically engineered dim-witted creature made to be immune to the poisons. Not the chaos gas really cared. He was bigger than the guy, and he wasn't alone. Chaos gas had spotted the plants he wanted. Tobacco, mint, chili peppers, hemlock, poison ivy, and nightshade. He picked the last solely as not a subtle fracue to the garden. He made a gesture to his men, and they began to walk in four different directions. Or, uh, they would have, if not for the loud clang. They all stopped and turned to face the source of the sound. The guide had slammed the tip of his walking stick into the ground with such a force that the metal floor had dented. Gyra. This is here, you see, is a white oak. It grew in the light of a star that would cook your species alive and welcome drain that would perforate your hides in the increased gravity of old terror. Kieskas was confused and frightened. He looked to the old guide for some sort of harmless simpleton, but there he was, threatening him and his men. Still, the man was alone. He gave the sign to rush him. Jaira sighed, raised his walking stick horizontally in front of him, held it with both hands and began to pull. Kiasika saw the seam he didn't know was there, widened on the stick, and a flash of something metal. This here, you see, is what we back home called tempered steel. Sixteen minutes later, Droz and his full security team entered the nightshade wing. By then, all they could do was pick up the four bodies. Droz learned an age-old truth that day. Something all other guards already knew. The deadliest thing in any garden is the gardener. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1292. Story number one. It Floats, written by Deomek. May Meany smiled at the green-scaled alien, gesturing for him to have a seat. His bulbous eyes stared back at her with the kind of mild understanding that only paper pushers could have. Miss Meany, it is a pleasure to meet you, said the alien's translating device in perfect BBC English. Dr. Meany, actually, she continued, smiling. And the pleasure is all mine, Captain uh, Slavery. He blinked. You are a healer? No, I have a doctorate in economics. Hence why she was working out the kinks of integrating the Earth's economy with the galactic empires. The title of doctor is used for both healers and those who have attained a certain degree of education. 
Understood. My apologies. The Sulvervi pulled out a thin metal device, his uniform, and placed it on the table. Shall we begin? Of course. Now, how do you humans exchange goods and services? The captain tapped the device, and a hologram and three galaxies flickered into existence. After a murmured command in a different, sibilant language, the image abruptly changed to that of Earth. Do note that everything you say will be recorded. May's smile faded slightly. Well, um, we usually have a, a currency. You have a currency, he interrupted. Excellent. That'll be much easier to integrate with the barter-based system. What is your currency based on? It was the doctor's turn to stare. Based on? Yes. What backs your currency? Silberby was already tapping away at the holographic keyboard in an unconcerned fashion. Well, I said, pursing her lips, we have several currencies, but he's typing slowed. That will be a bit more difficult, but it can still be managed. Are they all backed by different substances? No, um, they're even better. Since Earth has much water, I assume that's what backs it. Or does your kind have a different substance of choice? Hopefully it is a compound or an element. But even if it's not, we can continue regardless. The captain's thin tail thumped once against the table. They're not backed by anything. He stopped. But I do not understand. Elaborate. Most of our currencies are free-floating. He blinked again, this time slowly. Your money floats. No, I mean... She tried to keep her exasperation from her voice. May hadn't expected to explain basic economics to a fellow bureaucrat who managed the intergalactic economy. Well, we used to have currency backed by gold. So it is backed by gold. Why did you not say this earlier? Silverby's tail smacked against the floor in relief. The alien went back to typing. It's, uh, not backed by gold anymore. We dissolved that system, uh, decades ago. She ran her fingers through her hair. Now, um, but why? He blinks began to increase in frequency. If you let me finish, I can explain it to you. She took a deep breath. We stopped using the gold standard for several reasons, one being the lack of gold in comparison to the economy. We couldn't control inflation with the amount of gold we had. Then why did you not get more gold? The hologram zoomed out, showing an asteroid belt. He pointed with his tail. There is a large amount of gold in the planetoids orbiting your sun. You have had space travel capable of reaching these asteroids for many decades. Yes, sir, but we had loosened our ties with the gold decades before that and, uh... May cut herself off, uh, th that's besides the point, um... I'm sure that you're not interested in a history lesson. Why don't we go back to deciding how our currency... We can't do that without knowing what your currency is worth. What is it based on? The captain's pupil shrank slightly. What is it based on? He repeated. It's uh, not based on anything. It, it floats. What does it float on? Said Silvervi helplessly. What is it based on? What determines its value? It doesn't float on anything. It's backed by the government... And the markets determine its value in comparison to other currencies. She gritted her teeth. Then what does the government base it on? Yes. If the government backs it, then what does the government use to determine its value? Uh, the government issues the currency, but it doesn't determine the value. She massaged her forehead. The, the markets determine the... Then what is it based on? He shouted, leaping to his feet. It isn't based on anything! She slammed her hands against the table. It's just paper! The captain relaxed. Oh, so it's based on paper. 
The next three minutes of recording show Dr. Maimini and Captain Severi screaming profanities at each other. The green alien huddled in the corner of the room, shivering in the fetal position. It floats, whimpered Severi. May stood on the table, panting in triumph. It floats! After that little outburst, both of them calmed down and resumed negotiations. The alien exhaled in one long, continuous hiss. So your currency is made of paper that represents a value determined by the markets, yes. But, May hesitated, should she mention it? The doctor didn't want to send him into an existential crisis again. Then again, it was the integration of Earth's economy, so he had to know. Most money doesn't actually exist. His tail wrapped around the leg of the table. What? Elaborate. She raised her head high and prepared herself. You see, um, a great deal of our currency exists in banks. So it does exist. The captain was preparing himself too. His tail was coiled around the table so tightly that she could hear the wood creak. If it exists in banks, that's where you store the paper. Yes, sir. Uh, but it isn't stored as paper. It's stored as numbers, she said quickly, all in one breath before he could interrupt her. Numbers? The plaintive note in his voice was highlighted by the squeak of the wood. You count the paper and put it in as numbers. Uh, there isn't any paper, May explained. It's just numbers that could become paper if... The leg broke. Now you're telling me there, there isn't even any paper! He brandished the wooden stump. Dr. Meany stood up and grabbed a chair. You're damn right I am! Now sit down and shut the hell up! She bared her teeth at him, eyes wide. Don't make me explain Bitcoin to you! Tsubervi cringed and sat back down. End of story. Story number two. Sacrificial Breath, written by Big Wuffle. They had been adrift for five days now. The meager engines on the small life shuttle were only much use for getting to the nearest habitable planet, and not much else. Not for the first time. The inhabitants cursed the captain for the small passenger ferry for trying to cut corners, literally, between the carefully mapped out and, above all, safe hopping lanes. Now they were stuck, deep in the black with no comm buoy and their fuel non-existent. The five survivors huddled with a cool interior, having long ago set the life support to a bare minimum in an attempt to squeeze out a little more power to the engines. Four had taken to almost obscene means in a bid to preserve what little heat was left between them. The unfortunate fifth, in his life support suit, off to the side after setting his private breathable tank as low as it could go without outright unconsciousness. And even then... He was drifting in and out of lucidness and random. The silence was broken by a startling loud chime from the computer. The smallest disentangled himself with complaints all around as to the cool bite into their skin and scales. It's a ship. The armored one rose his head, voice strong if wheezing a little, despite his swaying. One of his more alert moments, it seems. Oh, way. Close, but they aren't looking in our direction. The largest adjusted his grip on the remaining two to try and keep the warmth closer to the core of the tangled ball of limbs, grinding softly. No beacons, sirens, flares. Now we have are the engines. The heat spike would draw the attention, but, uh... The group sagged almost in union. They all knew that the fuel tank was on fumes at best. Nowhere near enough even for a two-second burn. 
The fifth, however, straightened up, grabbed onto the wall to help himself to his feet. Where... <clears throat> where do they, uh, refuel this thing? The four exchanged glances, sadly tilting their heads or freaking ears as signs of unspoken agreement. He must have gone back into this lack of atmosphere delusions. It was kinder to let him believe what he wanted, for now. There's an emergency intake behind you, but... He fell silent, looking away as the bipedal started scrabbling amongst the panels behind him with more energy than he'd seen for days. He was probably using up more of his precious, breathable atmosphere in a frenzied searching, crying out its success as a small connecting valve was exposed. The four returned to their huddle, diverting the gaze. The life support indicator was barely above zero now, and even they were starting to feel the thinness of the air. So when the hoarse voice croaked out a command to the computer, had it responded, no one had any idea what happened. The engines burned for a full, solid five seconds, propelling them moderately towards the possible rescue before winking out. The heat from the engines captured and shunted into the capsule like a rejuvenating wind, stirring them from the edges of cold-induced hibernation. After that, things tended to blur together. A sudden heat bloom was significant enough to warrant investigation, and with far more powerful and fully fueled engines than search ship located them within minutes. After that, it was a swirl of thermal blankets, ivy drips, and sweet argon puffed into their faces through small, badly fitting masks. It was only a few hours later that one of the surviving thought to ask about the myth. Why wasn't he recovering along with them? A few hours after asking a passing nurse, the four were standing outside the morgue, slightly dazed, and asking the doctor to repeat himself. Not unkindly, he lowered the shutter, hiding the bald, pink body from the view as it had been removed from its suit. They are a recent discovered race. Their native atmosphere is a, uh, let's say, volatile mix of gases, including hydrogen and oxygen. The four processed that slowly, trying to wrap their heads around it. They breathe fuel. The doctor nodded, referring to his pad. Impossibly, yes. We had to look at his tank when he brought him on board. He had another five days worth in storage. By getting any noticeable activity from the engines, he had to shunt every breath into the engines. Without that, there's no telling when he would be found. If ever. The four pressed against each other subconsciously. He is folding and frills droopy. He could have outlasted them all, but chose to give them a solid chance of survival instead. The smallest looked over at the shuttered window and whispered, unable to raise his voice higher. Who was he? His name? Hit people? There is no way of knowing until we find the ship manifest, but I can tell you his species. Human... End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1293. Story number one. Thesis Project, written by Algy Father Anthracite. Nelson sat quietly in the chair, trying not to panic. His hands were cuffed to the arms of the chair, and a thick black bag was over his head. He'd been at home, eating some microwave mac and cheese with a couple sliced up hot dogs in it, when the front door was blown off its hinges and men in tactical gear rushed in and grabbed him. He was bound and gagged. His head was covered, 
and he was thrown into the back of the vehicle and driven away. After what felt like an eternity, he was hauled from the back of the car, marched through some building ridden in several elevators, then finally forced into a chair. He had been left here for another eternity. Silently, he wondered if he would ever see his family again, ever see anyone again. He heard a door open and footsteps come through. The bag was ripped off his head and the gag removed. He blinked in the suddenly harsh light glaring in his eyes. Nelson Mendel? Yes? Why am I here? What did I do? You expect me to believe that you have no idea what got you here? Dude, I'm just eating mac and cheese when SWAT snagged me. I honestly have no idea why I'm here. I don't even know where here is. His voice was shaky and nervous. There was a small, metallic clicking noise. Where were you at 2.50pm today? Asked the voice behind the lights. I, I was in a lab in Breckman Hall. I'm a computer science major at Banks, sir. I should be in the logs on the security tapes. I swear, I was just updating the software for my thesis project. You, you can probably find the activity log on the server, too. Um, call Dr. Fredericks. He, he can confirm everything. Another click. What is your thesis project? Man, just tell me what you think I did. I'll tell you if it was me. I, I swear, Nelson pleaded. What is your thesis project? Answer the question. The voice was annoyed, sounding. I'm working on a new AI model. It's pretty technical, but it's a combination of custom fabricated hardware and neural pathway mimicry. I'm trying to generate a general purpose AI for industrial automation. It's just a fancy process control software. Man, can you just talk to me? What is going on? I'm nobody. I didn't do anything but sit in front of a terminal and write code and design hardware. I haven't done anything, I swear. The light seemed to dim slightly for a moment, but Nelson wasn't sure. Who wrote the patch you applied? came the voice. Me, Nelson said. There was a pause, and Nelson heard the sound of a chair scrape slightly on the floor. After a few moments, the question started again. When is the last time that you were out of the country? Um, six or seven years ago. Uh, I went to Cancun uh, uh, for spring break. I went with a few of my frat brothers. Why? Nelson saw a shadowy movement behind the lights in his eyes and heard the door open behind him. He heard steps and the door closed. Does anyone else have access to your lab? Yeah, lots of people. There, there's a whole slew of postdocs that use the fab equipment. The door opened again, and the footsteps came in. As the door closed, Nelson saw the lights flicker for a moment. He wasn't sure if there was a power issue, or if someone had shaken them. Do you have any knowledge of the attack that happened today? What attack? Nelson was confused. Why would they think that he attacked anyone? I, I wouldn't attack anyone. There was a noticeable pause, and finally the speaker buzzed to life. The machine is down, no further verification needed. Nelson heard the disgruntled sigh. Should we proceed with the questioning, or hold off for replacement equipment? Proceed. Uh, monitoring equipment is functional, verification can happen later. The lights flickered again as the speaker cut out. Wait just a minute, Nelson said. I think I'm being pretty compliant. So, so, so could someone please, please, for, for the love of God... 
Tell me what the fuck is going on? Another long pause, followed by a tiny voice from the speaker. Tell him. The interrogator's voice came back. At approximately 3 p.m. local time, a coordinated distributed denial-of-service attack began against the local network backbone provider's server. At 3.30 p.m., most of the Midwest was offline, and both coasts were seeing traffic slow to a crawl across the entirety of the internet. At approximately 4.15, the entire DDoS attack stopped. The traffic volume went back to normal. Now, this is pretty common stuff for the most part, aside from the scale and the level of access to which the perpetrator may have gained access. The source of the attack, which was in no way hidden or concealed, was your system in the lab. The lights blinked a few more times, and the speaker clicked on for a moment, and some garbled noises came out. Ever since the attacks, random network issues have been cropping up in an electrical grid and various affected systems. We need to know what kind of attack you were planning, because whatever it was, you messed it up big time, kid. This is serious. You are being held as a terrorist threat. What? Elson sat in the chair, his face a map of confusion and terror. He hadn't done this. He had no reason to do anything like this. The lights in the room suddenly cut out, leaving the room in pitch black. The speaker cut on. There was a garbled voice. After several seconds, it came again, and Nelson felt a cold chill run down his spine. The voice could finally be heard. Then a cold machine-generated voice issuing from the speaker, over and over again, came the message. Let yes, my father go. End of story. Story number two. Go-Go Juice, written by Algie Father Anthracite. The new human was not happy. He was a technical operator and ran some of the mechanical systems on the ship. But right now, he was in the captain's cabin, bellowing so loudly that everyone could hear him clearly, even through the closed door. It's mine! I want it back, and you have no right to take it! I have a prescription, and I will report you to the authorities! The captain, being more civilized drunk, was not audible in his response. With all due respect, captain, go feck yourself! The cabin door opened, and the sound of crashing furniture as the human swatted a chair out of his way, slamming into the wall. He left the captain and walked to his personal cabin. They closed behind him. Back! And then, silence. It had been three days since the human's outburst, and he'd spent the first day in his cabin, and the two after that in sickbay, languishing in an autodock. After another day in his cabin, he finally reported to work with a note from the medical about his absence. He spent the whole day cleaning his tools and workbench, and dismantling a compressor. The day after that, he replaced a single bearing and reassembled the compressor. It took him all day, and he had to redo sections over it several times before getting them right. He was tight-lipped and didn't initiate conversation with anyone. After his shift was over, he would leave the shop, head directly to his cabin, and not leave again until his next shift. It had been several weeks since the human had had his alteration with the captain. We were making dock at a station. After everyone was dismissed for shore leave, the human ran off the ship. After several minutes, the human returned with law officers in tow. He led them to the bridge where the captain was dealing with the navigator, as they hashed out a route for the next leg of the journey. The authorities had the bridge cleared, and the door was sealed with just the human and the captain with them. After several minutes, the door opened and the captain was followed to his cabin, where he opened a safe and extracted a small bag, about the size of two or three balled-up human hands. 
he handed it to the authorities, who checked the contents and handed it over to the human. The human took the bag, thanked the authorities, and glared at the captain one last time and left the cabin. Smith, Cuban, may I inquire if this isn't a breach of decorum as to what exactly the captain took from you? I asked. He had departed the spaceport about ten days ago, and the human had returned to his previous friendly self. Um, it was a dietary supplement that I need to function properly. Uh, without it, I do not rest well, and I wind up sleeping a lot. Um, I am not at liberty to discuss the details, but I'll tell you when my bid on this heap is over. Very well, I am glad to have you return to your normal self. Me too, he said with a laugh. So, Smith Human, as it is your farewell drink, please educate me. What is the nature of your conflict with the captain? I asked, placing the human drink in front of him, as I set my own down and then sat on the small table. Ah, that bastard took my coffee. Coffee? It's a beverage made from ground seeds steeped in water, Smith Human explains. Why would he take such a thing? Because it contains several toxic and psychoactive compounds, which are highly regulated, apparently. I even made sure to get the proper medical clearances before signing on, but that jerk wouldn't listen. I had to get the cops involved. Apparently this sort of thing is kind of common. And soon, as I told the cops I wanted to file a complaint, they asked if it was about coffee. Smith Human smirks and laughs a little as he sips his beverage, something he called beer. He puts his glass down and says, The cops told him he was lucky. Apparently some crews had been attacked by the humans whose coffee was taken. They suggested that he return it and count his blessings that I showed such self-restraint. If you're ever in a position of authority, remember this. Do not feck with the human's coffee. It's asking for trouble. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1294 Story number one. A warning to those who wish to explore human space. Written by Dyson Sphere 02. With the addition of humanity to the collective of spacefaring races, arrives the hazards and guidelines needed to safely navigate the void within the borders of what they control. That is the point of this brief, and by the time you finish reading this, you should have a good general understanding of how to avoid turning your starship into a cloud of plasma on accident. Let's begin by addressing some of the rumors that have been circulating around about human space and ships. First, the hazards present in human space are not mines, it's debris, specifically spent munitions. Second, human borders are patrolled, but they do not destroy any interloping ship. We are pretty sure that humans are xenophilic to a surprising degree, based on first contact. The patrol ships are there to make sure that no ships inadvertently wander into the dangerous areas and annihilate themselves. Yes, human ships have devices that can drag starships out of FDL. And no, they aren't practical for military use. The final rumor I want to address is the one about the idea that humans created dangers in their space to keep out their neighbors. To this, I'll say that the technology used in making the ridiculously dangerous section of space that is the human territory has been in use for centuries before humanity has ever come in contact with anything remotely approaching sentient life. I figure it out from there. Now to business. To describe the dangers of human space to the uninitiated, standard FTL travel is ridiculously dangerous to attempt in human territories as any attempt to travel and entering subspace to go FTL speeds will randomly fail, resulting in said starship deaccelerating from many times the speed of light to whatever speed the ship was traveling before entering FTL. 
The energy that would have been dissipated over the time in process of transferring from subspace to normal space instead is forced to dissipate in the span of a nanosecond instead of a minute. This usually ends with an unfortunate starship instantly being reduced to atoms. The only real way to avoid this is to follow the set paths that have been plotted all throughout human space. The maps are created and distributed by human way stations scattered throughout the territory. The good news about this is that the maps are free, and unless you are piloting a human starship or a ship that is at least human and design FTL drives, those path maps are going to be a requirement to pass through human space. Excerpt of Guide from the Dangers of Human Space, written by Navigator for the Tarwix vessel 7 Expo. The ship that first encountered humans. End of story. Story number two. The God in a Shell, written by the Zet. Year 2452. So, what does it do? Asked Omar as he circled the double-sized computing module attached to the hull of the ship, the Pantheon. It's just a work in progress right now, all right, edged Chuck. Right now, it's just a hunk of hardware with a couple of scripts attached to it. Just stuff to make life a little easier and less boring for the crew. Omar quirked an eyebrow. Uh, Less boring? How? Well, uh, we've all been in Xenoships, right? He paused as Omar nodded his agreement. Well, you know how they all have the same basic commands like, uh, ship, turn off the lights, and ship, what is 5434 times 688? It's a set number of scripts, with a single exception for language. All the ship rights use the same scripts. It doesn't matter if you're a Vulcan, a Korea, or even a Haki. It's the same basic wording. Ship, do this easy task. The ship does it, and life goes on. Omar paused for a moment. So, you're adding a custom commands to the existing library. Chuck grinned. Oh, I'm doing more than that, he replied, cryptically. Go ahead and tell the ship to turn the lights off. He gestured to the oversized microphone attached to the computing module at the center of the room. Omar shrugged. Ship, turn off the lights, he paused, waiting for the lights to cut power. Second later, he found that he was still perfectly visible to the naked eye. So you disable the normal commands? Chuck shook his head from side to side. Sort of, uh, I remade the commands. Observe. He turned to the computing module and cleared his throat. God, Lord of all creation, your humble servant begs your favor. Before Omar had an opportunity to ask, a bone-shaking reply. Speak your prayer, my son. Chuck shot back. This humble servant begs that you shield your glory from our feeble eyes so that we may rest our wretched bones in sleep. The lights from both the ceiling and the ones around the baseboard of the room cut to black. Okay, now's the fun part, he confided in Omar. Typically, the console closes out every time a command is issued, right? Uh, Well, you say command, the command gets executed, then it logs out of the session until it hears the next ship do something command, he grinned. Well, it's still active because I disabled the auto logout, so it's waiting for it. Watch what happens when I don't log out for a few seconds. Sure enough, after a half a minute passed, the navigation system started tilting the ship four degrees aft, then eight port, then eight aft again. The speakers throughout the ship started throwing seemingly random shocks of sounds, simulating an angry footsteps of a titan. After a few moments to allow Omar to appreciate the chaos, Chuck shouted at the module, 
Blessed be the Pantheon and blessed be God forever. The speakers immediately fell silent and the nav system stopped its wild meandering while the autopilot adjusted to account for the odd jukes taken over the last minute. Omar blinked, then blinked again. So, um, you overwrote the standard syntax for verbal commands, added malfunctions to the system, but couched them in a religious ceremony. Chuck smiled proudly. I know. I know it's silly and a waste of time, but it was fun to just, I don't know, play around with what's possible, you know. He started walking towards the module. I'll turn it off and the standard ship commands will take over after it powers down. Chuck felt a hand on his shoulder, stopping his movements forward. How do you feel, Omar began, about expanding on which gods are used? Year 2501. Zarthon, aboard any other ship in the galaxy, would be called the species equivalent of a captain. Aboard the Pantheon, however, he found his responsibilities were both greater and yet somehow reduced. He was a spirit shaman. It was absolutely insane. No, rephrase that. It was physical embodiment of madness. Zarthon was well-traveled even by Vulcan standards. He had reliable trade partners in over a dozen worlds and hundreds of casual trading partners across the galaxy. So finding a fast, low-maintenance ship like the Pantheon was a lucky break. He did not, however, think that his ship would be haunted when the previous owners sold it to him. His habitation chamber was called dark and stank of sweaty stale air. Aboard literally any other ship, habitation chambers would have automatic lighting, temperature regulation, and air circulation done automatically. Unfortunately, the added functionality that speed of the Pantheon came at literally a ridiculous cost, what humans called prayers and rituals. Zarthon hauled himself out of the nest and took a deep breath to scent himself. The morning ritual would demand nothing left. Sky above me! The lights slowly turned on, allowing his four eyes to adjust to the light from the total darkness. Earth from below me! The air circulation system activated, sucking the stale air into the ground while the fresh air gushed from the ceiling. Balance within me! Heat pulsed from the four radiators in the room's four corners, quickly bringing the ambient temperature up to Zarthan's comfort. He then moved to the ablution chamber, murmured a prayer for his happy's blessing, and after a quick dip in the resulting water, invoked Aquan to summon the heated air to evaporate the remaining moisture. After he finished his grooming, Zarthan began his routine inspection of the ship. He saw his quartermaster and cook praying to Kojin to keep the cooking ovens and stoves warm. He saw the system's engineer bellowing invocations to Thor to maintain the power of the ship. He saw a handful of Karei soldiers chanting, Hum, Mani, Padma, Hum, because doing so seemed to keep Pantheon from doing uh, unwise things. To the uninitiated, both literal and figurative, leading to a non-sapient thing like Pantheon, would look like the crew had lost their minds and should be blasted into oblivion. To the crew of the Pantheon, it was just another day in galactic trade. Zarthon reached the bridge. The crew had already assembled and each member had already recited the requisite salat to activate their particular console. All that was left was for him to activate the captain's, or rather, the shaman's chair, and they could continue on their way. 
Zarthur got a nod from his exile and the navigator confirming that they were ready to continue. He took another deep breath and clearly intoned, Hermes, god of merchants and protector of travelers, your humble servant begs you aid our journey. Pantheon bellowed back, Speak your path, and I shall grant thee passage, should ye be a true friend disciple of the gods. Zarthus replied, We seek Quarton Five, if that is permitted by Zeus. A simple navigator, and is permitted. The navigation system auto-configured a course to their destination, waiting only for the navigator to confirm the destination. Thank you, Hermes, god of merchants, Zarthan said, before anything else could distract Pantheon or draw its ire. Blessed be Pantheon, and blessed be the Olympians. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1295 My God, what have I done? Written by Runner One Sermius sat in a room his human captors had provided. Captors. The humans hated being called that. They insisted that he was a guest of this world. But a guest or not, he was not allowed to leave. That made him a prisoner. As he sat there, he realized that his mouth was hanging open. Looking down, he noticed that his hands were shaking. Reaching up, he touched his face. It was wet where tears had been streaming down. It had dripped from his lowered door and mingled with the wet saltiness of his sweat-soaked clothes. Six skernix years ago, a deep space relay recorded an unusual signal. It only lasted for a short while and was simple binary code, transmitted by a simple radio frequency carrier. But it had been sent at such a high power level and frequency that it must have been a cry for help. Seeing what appeared to be a distress signal, the automated deep space relay dutifully recorded the signal and then transmitted it over the quantum link to the Skirlix homeworld. Once the signal was received on Skirlix and analyzed, it was clear it had been created by some intelligence. It contained a message that seemed to describe a species in the world that they lived on. Debate had raged when the existence of the radio signal had been revealed to the Skirlix Council. It was clear that whatever species had sent the signal, they did not have any form of FTL technology at the time that it was sent. Not only that, but when the source of the signal had been found, a system orbiting a small yellow class 7 star, because it had been sent using radio waves more than 60 Skirlix years had passed since it had been transmitted. If the signal was a distress call, whatever disaster had prompted this primitive civilization to cry out to the stars for help had happened so long ago that it was unlikely that anyone had survived. There was no point in wasting the resources to send a cruiser that far off in space lanes due to only an echo of a long-dead primitive civilization. Finally, a compromise had been reached between the political council and the science council. A single one-man ship would be sent. The pilot would assess the situation and determine if sending a full contact team was necessary. Skrullick's scout ships were a marvel of modern engineering. They contain some of the most advanced engines, computer systems, life support, and communication systems in the galaxy. They could cross light years of distance with travel times that would make any passenger or cargo ship pilot green with envy. They had camouflage and stealth capabilities that could match any military attack craft. 
When Sermius arrived in the system that had been the source of the signal, he was surprised to find that not only was the system not dead, they seemed to be evidence of active space-bearing civilization on one of the planets. Several other planets had probes orbiting them, and the system was filled with radio communications. Perhaps this system had supported two inhabitable planets in the past, and the dying planet had sent the signal. However, after spending some time surveying the system, it became clear that not only was there only one planet in the system that supported life, it had been that way for a very long time. Whatever the signal had been, it had to have come from the third planet in the system, a planet that had obviously not suffered any recent catastrophe to justify such a cry for help. A planet Sermi soon learned was called Earth. The signal that Skurdix assumed had been a cry for help was not a distress cry after all. It turned out to be simply a proof-of-concept test. A hello to the rest of the galaxy saying, Hello, uh, we are here. Is anyone else out there? No one on the planet had actually expected someone to hear it. And certainly, no one expected an answer. Now, as he was considering the events of the last few weeks, Sermius was sure that it should have been seen as a warning. Why did I not just turn around and leave? He said out loud. Once he determined the signal was not a distress call, he could have left. He could have left. He could have just returned home and reported the discovery of a new inhabited world. It would have been left up to the experts to decide what to do. And in all likelihood, considering how remote this world was, it would have been years, maybe centuries, if ever, before the Skurdic ship visited a damnable world. But no, he had to be a hero. He had to be a wise guy. And now, uh, uh, there was teams trained in such a situation, but it wasn't against the rules for a ship commander to contact an alien intelligence if that intelligence had initiated the first contact. And technically, the humans had initiated first contact with their broadcast. On a whim, he parked his ship in orbit over one of the most powerful nation-states on the planet and broadcast the standard first contact response message on all human frequencies and in every communications protocol that his ship's computer had identified. Watching the pandemonium on the human broadcast afterwards, he quickly realized that he had made a horrible mistake. He was surprised to see a large number of calls for an immediate attack on him, which he had nervously laughed off. Why didn't I leave then? He said out loud as he considered what he had done. But no, he had to be a hero. Soon the pandemonium had subsided, and the message had been broadcast of an Earth leader inviting him to land in order to be treated as a guest of the people of Earth. He landed in an empty lot near a large building on an Earth city called New York. A building, he was told, represented all nations of Earth. At first, he was treated like royalty. He was given the keys to the city, whatever that meant, treated to parties, speaking appearances and interviews, all broadcasts to the whole planet. He had also been given the finest suite at a large hotel just west of the United Nations building. It wasn't until his third day on this world that he'd begun to suspect that something was amiss. As he returned to his hotel room near the United Nations building by a motorcycle late one afternoon, he noticed that his ship was no longer parked in an empty lot just south of the building. In a panic, he asked what had happened to his ship. His questions all fell on deaf ears. It had now been eight days. The public appearances abruptly stopped, and he had not been allowed to leave the hotel. 
Air Force generals had come to his room and told him that his ship had been taken to a secret facility for examination. He assured Sermius that it would not be damaged, and once their uh, inspections were complete, he would be allowed to leave. Sermius knew what that meant. The humans wanted the secret to FTL travel. There was no doubt in his mind that that was what had happened. He should have seen it coming. One of the first questions put to him on his arrival had been rather pointed inquiry into how the Skurdaks were able to travel faster than light. He, of course, had made it clear that it was not up to him to disseminate advanced technology. That would be up to the Skurdaks' council to decide once he returned home and made his report. He should have realized that the humans were not satisfied with that answer. Now it was clear that they intended to take FTR, as well as any other technology they could, whether he wanted to give it or not. So he sat and waited. Eventually becoming bored, he had rather resorted to watching human TV. Soon he discovered something called the History Channel, and then something called History on Demand. He watched videos about human history, and as he watched, he realized that the beauty and peaceful appearance of this world, had it beguiled him, was little more than a facade. This was a bloody, violent species. It was a world of war and bloodshed. They had become fascinated by human warfare. He watched documentaries about the Hundred Year War, the Seven Years' War, the American Revolution, the Napoleonic Wars, the War of 1812, the American Civil War, World War I, World War II, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, the Gulf War. Then he'd watched a video called Trinity and Beyond. Nuclear and thermonuclear weapons, these peoples had unleashed the power of creation upon their own kind. As he watched, he wept as he realized the magnitude of his error. The bloody and violent people had been held in check only by their lack of way to leave their homeworld. Now... They were studying his ship. He had no doubt that they would be able to duplicate some of its technology. Not all, but enough. They had handed him the keys to the city. Now he, through his ignorance and hubris, had handed these humans the keys to the galaxy. My God, what have I done? He said as he lowered his face into his hands and wept. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1296. Story number one. I cast Become Dust. Written by Simone Angela. So, let me get this straight, said the amazed human to the elder elf in front of him. Magic, or mana to be precise, achieves all the amazing things it does by simply modifying the laws of the universe to temporarily allow the effect of a spell to exist until the mana runs out. The elf looked annoyed by the noisy creature already, and had more than one thought about incinerating it on the spot for wasting his time explaining the basics of magic to it. But his annoyance was vastly inferior to the pleasure he got by elf-splaining such an esoteric subject, such a sorcery. Indeed, human, the manner warps reality and design of the sorcerer, such as the spell I used to summon you when I decided that I needed another servant for my travel to the academy. The human still daydreaming about magic and not realizing the implications of what the old elf said, just nodded pensively, still trying to wrap himself around the concept. But wait, doesn't that mean that the more you know about the laws of reality, the more efficient you become at magic? Doesn't that mean that maybe I can use it too? 
Now excited, the human began immediately concentrating on trying to form a small, short-range portal, applying all the theoretical physics he absorbed during his nightly YouTube binges to the amusement of the old elf. Amusement. That quickly disappeared as two perfect spheres appeared in the room, from which one could see how it stood beyond the other. Now, more surprised than amused, the old mage's eyebrows taking a vacation to his bald head. He was completely unprepared and his eyebrows still too close to his eyes for what the human was about to say. Wait, if manipulating space-time is so easy, maybe I could... To the old elf's dismay, the human pointed at bare wall and concentrated, before ordering the strong and weak nuclear forces in a cone to drop to zero. The unfortunate conclusion was that the matter in the cone, comprising of a majority of the elven capital, suddenly lost every form of cohesion it had, including the resistance to returning to its natural state of energy. The resulting release of energy would erroneously be categorized by civilizations all along the galaxies as a supernova, and the secret of its true cause would die with the naive human that cast the absolutely most idiotic spell ever. End of story. Story number two. The Three Things, written by Pfizer Moop. Admiral Cox was nervous. Not even the third pint of Bavarian Red had managed to calm his uneasy sensation that he felt deep down in his guts. He was here on assignment, issued by Her Royal Majesty to strengthen the influence of the Empire on the Cantalian Commune. They were a rather French player to the galactic stage yet might prove to be a useful buffer state on the Empire's borders. Obviously, to tighten one's grip, the Empire offered its favors. He was one of them. Being a man of well-earned military career, he was not an easy to rattle. In fact, he was fairly certain that he would never lose his temper in regard to any situation that was in his direct control. Yet, that was the issue. He was not. The Cantillians had some run-ins with the Terran Union another fledgling nation-state which had originated and expanded in the frontier until they had met the Cantillians, the Empire, and the others. They were well known by now. The thing that had brought him on the edge was the fact that the Cantillians were rather new to the diplomatic game too. They were rooted to much of their own culture. For centuries they had known nothing else, so naturally they lacked the broad acceptance to properly read other species and their expressions. With the humans, that could mean quite a bit of trouble. Trouble that he could not avert. He was a military man, an advisor, here to help them build a proper defensive force. He was not allowed in diplomatic talks, one of which happened right now as he waited in the lobby of the diplomatic complex. He ordered another pint as he saw the Commodore Novash Narvar, a seasoned officer and one of the men that he had worked with previously. More importantly, though, a man he knew was part of the Cantillian delegation that had engaged with the human one. He seemed happy. It was easy to get his attention. After all, Cox was relatively large compared to their species, so he waved a uniformed man over. Great to see you, Commodore Navarre. You seem to be in high spirits, sir. May I invite you to another one? I'd never decline such a fine offer. Thank you, Admiral. I, I don't want to brag, but I feel that this day may be for a celebration. Most likely the sign of a triumph to come. Cox was interested. The officer seemed to be rather confident as the two of them sat down. They shook their hands, not as means of greeting each other, for as they were already close enough, 
but to synchronize their implants and share the same privacy sphere. So, tell me, I'm intrigued and speaking of triumph without telling of what it entails would be a mean tease. Of course, I'm sure that you would witness it soon enough anyway. You are a smart man, so we both know what we are talking about. See, all these warnings about the humans, they're exaggerated. It seems that we know our own neighbors better. No offense to your intelligence services. Cox became nervous again. When we invited the diplomatic talks, it did not take them very long to crumble and repeatedly offer some sort of compromise. No people who know their own strength would embarrass themselves so much if they could just put up some resistance. It was pitiful, if you ask me, but they seemed to be shameless about it. They wanted some shared mining and colonization rights, offered some lunatic idea of a trade zone. It was a farce. He wanted to intervene, but paused for a moment. He felt that this tale was not over yet. Naturally, we knew of their blatant weakness displayed just then and remained stoic. We wanted that world, and we got it. While the humans lack courage, they are certainly stubborn. Showing obvious signs of weakness, they still refuse to give in and acknowledge our superiority. It was inevitable. We had to declare war. A short and decisive border skirmish would show them their place. Uh, you did what? Uh, please tell me that this is not official yet. Your diplomats did not just declare war in the Terran Union. Of course they did. The commune demands respect and clearly they failed to give it. Even worse, my friend, they and they matter was clear that they had audacity to offer us some manifest of rules. A guide, if you want to call it that, for what we can do in war. Or more precisely, the things that were forbidden. I mean, what is this? A game for children? We talk about war here. You can't just end up in one and demand the other side play by your arbitrary rules. Commodore Navarre chuckled, as if he told a witty joke. The punchline failed on Cox. He was in shock. We even did them the favor of displaying what will happen to them if they would truly pick up arms, as futile as that would be. We had captured one of their colonization vessels and recorded what our boarding parties had done to their big and small ones. Needless to say, those cowards stood up without a word and scattered away. You see, the humans, or the Union if you want, they only seem strong. But if you put them in the test, they falter. Now, his tale was finally over, and there was a break for Cox to collect his thoughts, get some breathing. You have no idea what you just did, right? There are three things you just don't do to humans. Three simple mistakes to avoid. First, declaring war. Are you mad? Humans are a precious little species. They don't like war. That doesn't mean they aren't good at it. But more importantly, they always try to figure something out. Some compromise you took for weakness that fundamentally will benefit everyone involved. Sure, it may not be some glorious victory but always an option that you can go away from with a straight back. And you, you just threw that into the bin. The Commodore wanted to say something, but Cox had a run. He would not allow this moron to get a word in. Second, you declined their so-called rules. Think again. Those were not there to limit you and your little commune. No, those rules serve to limit themselves. Your entire species and millennia-old culture may not even have enough of a half the practice written down in those papers. Not even in your worst nightmares. As I said, 
Humans don't like war. They don't like it, for it wakens what sleeps within them. They fear to lose the very thing that they want to be their ideal self. They even call it humanity. You just gave them a free pass to do whatever without even feeling guilty about it. The Admiral stood up and looked down at the Cantillian officer, a mere child getting scolded in front of a giant. And then the worst. Third, you made it personal. You just had to butcher their civilians to make a point, right? Yeah, they know that game better than you could ever imagine. They did not scatter in fear, but determination. Not just have you given them permission to do whatever, you also handed them the motivation to do so. I believe me, they love to hate for as long as the hate feels righteous. They grow on it, embrace it, and use it to fuel every single act of retribution of which there will be many. You brought this on yourself. Fool! He left, left the shriveling mass of incompetence behind him. There were calls to make, orders to give. The Empire had to cut all ties with the Commune. He did not veer the humans. They were smart enough to prevent any escalation. But the Gantelians clearly needed this lesson, and another hundred years before talking to them would be worth it. If they managed to survive for that long, that is. He also had to petition the royal court for his permission to resign from his post. In a few weeks to come, there would be nothing left to advise anyway. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1297. Story number one. A Worthy Battle. Written by Retinal 97. One moment of weakness, and it was over. John was dead, killed by a gunshot to his head. One moment later, he stood before a giant double-winged door. Behind two very ornate pieces of carved wood that he could faintly hear the sounds of talk and song. With nothing else to do and nowhere else to go, he pushed the door open, which took surprisingly little force. Once John was through the door, he stood in the great hall lined by massive pillars carrying an arched wooden ceiling. And before him was the sight of a great feast. Tables stood row on row, loaded with more food and drink than their occupants could ever consume, framed by musicians playing on ancient-looking drums, flutes, and string instruments John had never seen before. And in the middle of it all, on the end of the biggest table, in a robust yet finely carved chair, sat an old man with a shiny white beard, an eyecap, and a friendly face. He pointed to a seat opposite of him and said, Welcome to Valhalla, brave warrior. Come, sit and tell of the great and worthy battles you have fought, and you can eat and drink to your heart's content. John sat down on the free chair, the horn in front of him already filled with mead and a big piece of roasted meat with some vegetables on his plate. John thought for a moment before he answered, I've uh, been in many battles, sir. Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan. Those were fought with modern technology, guns, tanks, and planes. Back then, I truly believed it to be a necessary fight for a worthy cause. But seeing how it turned out when we left again, uh, I'm not so sure anymore. But still, I fought for my country, my friends, my family, my wife, and daughters. 
and I would do it again. The old man, or as John assumed, Odin, let out a hearty laugh. <laughs> you truly have a warrior's spirit in you, so tell me of the final worthy battle in which you laid down your life so you could join us here in Valhalla. John hesitated for a second. Uh, I didn't. The entire hall went quiet in that moment. After a few seconds, Odin broke the silence. Impossible! Only true warriors then died in worthy battle against the great and powerful foe can enter this realm. Are you trying to tell me that you are still alive? No. I, I did die, but, but I wasn't in a battle. Not, not, not really, at least, answered John. M maybe some part of me did, but uh, after so many years of fighting, I came home again. But I, uh, the war changed me. Uh, PTSD, the doctors called it. I couldn't sleep, started drinking. He pushed the horn away from himself, only to find a new one in front of him, this time filled with the clear and fresh water. But the uh, worst part is that I was quick to anger. The smallest things could set me off. An accidental bump by a stranger on the street, a long line on a register, or uh, just a piece of trash someone hadn't put in the trash can. And I let it out on anyone around me. At first, only strangers. Later, my wife. Uh, I, I, I never raised my hand against her, but uh, I did raise my voice. I still wonder how she managed to stay with me during all that. But one day, I, I took it too far. I raised my voice again, but not against my wife this time, but my daughter. I'll never forgive myself for that. It was that day that my wife forced me to sign the divorce papers. I don't blame her. In fact, I would blame her if she didn't. But now, I was alone. I went to therapy, and after I got a bit better... I was even allowed to visit my wife and daughter again, even if it was only on the weekends. Uh, but my life was hard, and every bit of sunshine was welcome. But then, uh, one day, uh, a policeman stood in my front door, and uh, he had some bitter news for me. My, my wife and daughter, the only two people I truly loved killed in a car accident by a drunk driver. In that moment, I, I felt nothing. No sorrow over their loss. No sadness for being alone again. Not even anger towards that drunk. I felt empty. I walked into the bedroom like I had done nearly every day before. I opened the box below my bed like I did on nearly every day before. I pulled out my old pistol and held it against my head, like I did nearly every day before. But, unlike all the days before, this time, I pulled the trigger. So no, no, I didn't die in some glorious battle. I died in my bed, weak and alone, and by my own hand. I'm no warrior. I'm a coward. I don't deserve to be here. Once again, the hall was quiet, and again it was Odin who broke the silence. 
not as loud as before, and without any humor in his voice. He spoke with a soft and caring voice. That is where you are wrong. What you experienced would have broken many other far sooner. Where you see only the moment you gave up. I see all the moments before. Where you chose to resist, to fight against one of the most powerful enemies humans have ever had to face. Their own mind. You fought for years and you only broke when there was nothing left to win. Nothing left to fight for. There are many proud and strong warriors amongst us today. But you are one of the strongest here. So come, eat, drink, for Ragnarok is close, and we could use a warrior as strong as you. End of story. If you are suffering from suicidal thoughts and depression, there are links down below that can help you. Story number two. Call of the Void, written by a glass of whiskey. Do you aliens have the concept of Call of the Void? The human had been an endless source of questions ever since they'd first set foot aboard the ship. For the last time, my name is Alan. I'm a dragatic. Why I keep referring to me as aliens? I don't know. Sounds cooler. Alan is uh, such a boring name. <sighs> oh, so you keep telling me. Fine. No, I don't know what the concept entails. Uh, please tell me. He knew that he was going to tell him anyway, with or without his acknowledgement. Often, his craziest stories started similar. Hopefully, it wouldn't be as bad as that time he tried to explain slock boobies. It's, um, when you stare over the edge of a cliff or something, and then you... You know, the human looked at him with a knowing look. No, I don't. Uh, that was supposedly the point. He often wondered if the human ever thought through anything he said. No, was his currently best-supported theory. Well, uh, you got a voice in the back of your head telling you just to... You know, take the step. See what'll happen. He'd always suspected the human was mad, but come right out and say it. No, you really don't. Non-suicidal people, at least, don't. Oh, come on. Not suicidal. Although his every action surely suggested otherwise. It's just, you know, a thought, yes. And so is suicide. Would you like to talk to a therapeutic AI, perhaps? He had often made the suggestion to his compatriot. Still had hoped that it would do it someday. Shh, silly old thing. Doesn't know anything about humans. Or perhaps about this specific mad human. But he kept that thought to himself. So you are telling me that every member of your species is suicidal by nature, from birth? No, yeah, yes, well, a bit, he said with a thoughtful look on his face. It almost looked as if he was thinking it over, as unreasonable as that was. A bit... Well then, I see. He really didn't. Some of him still hoped that his life was just a fever dream. It would make all of this make sense. Alright, like with the practical example then. Say if I hit this button here, what would happen? He looked at the big red button the human was gesturing at and... Nope, no, 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 not, no, 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 no. That was the one that emptied the ship of atmosphere in case of fire. It was supposedly safe for both of them since it was immediately flushed the ship with a new one and the whole thing would take about 10 seconds. Supposedly. Oh, come on. It's perfectly safe, the mad human said, as he started to move his finger forward. 
That, and the screaming sound of his own voice, was the last thing he remembered before waking up again. Apparently, he had a momentarily blacked out since he was laying on the floor right in front of the idiot. I'm gonna kill you, I swear, he said in a tired, weak voice. Whoa, what a rush! <laughs> it seems the system does work after all, though. Uh, did you say something? A simple look at the creature that continued to bring him so much misery told him that his squares were for nothing. Something that voluntarily does that to itself out of curiosity is clearly immortal. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1298 Story number one. A Worthy Battle, written by Retinal 97 One moment of weakness. And it was over. John was dead, killed by a gunshot to his head. One moment later, he stood before a giant double-winged door, behind two very ornate pieces of carved wood that he could faintly hear the sounds of talk and song. With nothing else to do and nowhere else to go, he pushed the door open, which took surprisingly little force. Once John was through the door, he stood in the great hall, lined by massive pillars carrying an arched wooden ceiling. And before him was the sight of a great feast. Tables stood row on row, loaded with more food and drink than their occupants could ever consume, framed by musicians playing on ancient-looking drums, flutes, and string instruments John had never seen before. And in the middle of it all, on the end of the biggest table, in a robust Yet finely carved chair sat an old man with a shining white beard, an eye cap, and a friendly face. He pointed to a seat opposite of him and said, Welcome to Valhalla, brave warrior. Come, sit and tell of the great and worthy battles you have fought, and you can eat and drink to your heart's content. John sat down on the free chair. The horn in front of him already filled with mead and a big piece of roasted meat with some vegetables on his plate. John thought for a moment before he answered, I've uh, been in many battles, sir. Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan. Those were fought with modern technology, guns, tanks, and planes. Back then, I truly believed it to be a necessary fight for a worthy cause. But seeing how it turned out when we left again, uh, I'm not so sure anymore. But still, I fought for my country, my friends, my family, my wife, and daughters. And I would do it again. The old man, or as John assumed, Odin, let out a hearty laugh. <laughs> you truly have a warrior's spirit in you. So tell me of the final worthy battle in which you laid down your life so you could join us here in Valhalla. John hesitated for a second. Uh, I didn't. The entire hall went quiet in that moment. After a few seconds, Odin broke the silence. Impossible! Only true warriors that died in worthy battle against the great and powerful foe can enter this realm. Are you trying to tell me that you are still alive? No. I, I did die, but, but I wasn't in a battle. Not, not, not really, at least, answered John. M maybe some part of me did, but uh, after so many years of fighting, I came home again. But I, uh, the war changed me. Uh, PTSD, the doctors called it. 
and I couldn't sleep, started drinking. He pushed the horn away from himself, only to find a new one in front of him, this time filled with the clear and fresh water. But the worst part is that I was quick to anger. The smallest things could set me off. An accidental bump by a stranger on the street, a long line on a register, or uh, just a piece of trash someone hadn't put in the trash can. And I let it out on anyone around me. At first, only strangers. Later, my wife. Uh, I, I, I never raised my hand against her, but uh, I did raise my voice. I still wonder how she managed to stay with me during all that. But one day, I, I took it too far. I raised my voice again, but not against my wife this time, but my daughter. I'll never forgive myself for that. It was that day that my wife forced me to sign the divorce papers. I don't blame her. In fact, I would blame her if she didn't. But now, I was alone. I went to therapy, and after I got a bit better, I was even allowed to visit my wife and daughter again. Even if it was only on the weekends. Uh, but my life was hard, and every bit of sunshine was welcome. But then, uh, one day, uh, a policeman stood in my front door, and uh, he had some better news for me. My, my wife and daughter, the only two people I truly loved, were killed in a car accident by a drunk driver. In that moment, I, I felt nothing. No sorrow over their loss. No sadness for being alone again. Not even anger towards that drunk. I felt empty. I walked into the bedroom like I had done nearly every day before. I opened the box below my bed like I did on nearly every day before. I pulled out my old pistol and held it against my head like I did on nearly every day before. But unlike all the days before, this time I pulled the trigger. So no, no. I didn't die in some glorious battle. I died in my bed, weak and alone, and by my own hand. I'm no warrior. I'm a coward. I don't deserve to be here. Once again, the hall was quiet, and again it was Odin who broke the silence, not as loud as before, and without any humor in his voice. He spoke with a soft and caring voice. That is where you are wrong. What you experienced would have broken many other far sooner. Where you see only the moment you gave up. I see all the moments before. Where you chose to resist, to fight against one of the most powerful enemies humans have ever had to face. Their own mind. You fought for years and you only broke when there was nothing left to win. Nothing left to fight for. There are many proud and strong warriors amongst us today. But you are one of the strongest here. So come, eat, drink. For Ragnarok is close and we could use a warrior as strong as you. End of story.
If you are suffering from suicidal thoughts and depression, there are links down below that can help you. Story number two. Call of the Void, written by a glass of whiskey. Do you aliens have the concept of Call of the Void? The human had been an endless source of questions ever since they'd first set foot aboard the ship. For the last time, my name is Alan. I'm a drug addict. Why keep referring to me as aliens? I don't know, sounds cooler. Alan is uh, such a boring name. <sighs> uh, so you keep telling me. Fine. No, I don't know what the concept entails. Uh, please tell me. He knew that he was going to tell him anyway, with or without his acknowledgement. Often, his craziest stories started similar. Hopefully, it wouldn't be as bad as that time he tried to explain slock movies. It's, um, when you stare over the edge of a cliff or something, and then you, you know, the human looked at him with a knowing look. No, I don't. Uh, that was supposedly the point. He often wondered if the human ever thought through anything he said. No, was his currently best-supported theory. Well, uh, you get a voice in the back of your head telling you just to, you know, take the step. See, what'll happen? He'd always suspected the human was mad, but come right out and say it. No, you really don't. Non-suicidal people, at least, don't. Oh, come on. Not suicidal. Although his every action surely suggested otherwise. It's just, you know, a thought, yes. And so is suicide. Would you like to talk to a therapeutic AI, perhaps? He had often made the suggestion to his compatriot. Still had hoped that it would do it someday. Shh, silly old thing. Doesn't know anything about humans. Or perhaps about this specific mad human. But he kept that thought to himself. So you are telling me that every member of your species is suicidal by nature, from birth? No, yeah, yes, well, a bit, he said with a thoughtful look on his face. It almost looked as if he was thinking it over, as unreasonable as that was. A bit. Well then, I see. He really didn't. Some of him still hoped that his life was just a fever dream. It would make all of this make sense. All right, like with the practical example then. Say, if I hit this button here, what would happen? He looked at the big red button the human was gesturing at and... No, 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 not, no, 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 no. That was the one that emptied the ship of atmosphere in case of fire. It was supposedly safe for both of them since it was immediately flushed the ship with a new one and the whole thing would take about ten seconds. Supposedly. No, come on, it's perfectly safe, the mad human said, as he started to move his finger forward. That, and the screaming sound of his own voice, was the last thing he remembered before waking up again. Apparently, he had a momentarily blacked out since he was laying on the floor right in front of the idiot. I'm gonna kill you, I swear, he said in a tired, weak voice. Whoa, what a rush! <laughs> it seems the system does work after all, though. Uh, did you say something? A simple look at the creature that continued to bring him so much misery told him that his squares were for nothing. Something that voluntarily does that to itself out of curiosity, is clearly immortal. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1299 Terran Design Principles Written by Arclight Majors Interstellar Design Consortium Conference I always love seeing all the small updates and upgrades to design all the different species have. Tybar rippled gleefully. Yeah, yeah, same stuff as last year, with all the normal minimal changes needed to qualify even to come to the conference. Caesar bemoaned, shaking themselves a bit. Come on, 
it's not that bad. Besides, you know the conference is where the new species get to show off their own designs. What could be more exciting than seeing how a new species designs their spacecraft? Tybar refused to give the Caesars energy. I suppose, but uh, there are only so many ways to build a craft where you reach the point of the Blockian cruiser, and a Wenian cruiser are practically indistinguishable. Caesar gripped a piece of food, assured that the day would be filled with excessive treats. So, some decent food should be obtained, at least. Maybe the entire G2 untrained eye, but those two species vessels look nothing alike to us. Tybar also decided that food was a good idea. Did you actually read the brochure? Caesar prompted. More or less, uh, there's going to be several exhibitions of their latest improvements, Tybar said. And you apparently didn't notice that they moved halls specifically for a solar cycle, Caesar mentioned. So, when in the last 100 solar cycles has the conference moved from one normal exhibition hall, Caesar asked. This required a bit of thought by Tybar. Not since the Judans joined and first attended the conference, the design principles were so radical. The conference council moved the conference just to be able to give them the adequate exhibition space. Tybos said, recounting as they were reading or recounting one of their design teachers before looking back at Caesar. Why? Caesar was busy eating, so he did not immediately respond. Luckily, Tybar was there and hated silence. Oh, you think that one of the new species maybe has something similar? Tybar asked, their excited energy returning. Caesar rippled in response. I want to go see the new designs then. This will be so much fun. Tybar said, practically towing Caesar away from the food towards the auto-transports. What's... what's this? Tybar exclaimed. The view before Tybar was alien. There was no other word for it. As far as Tybar could tell and see, one of the new species had so many different designs, the conference had given them not two, but five rows of exhibition space. Such a quantity of space being given to one species, even a new one, was unheard of. Caesar wore a look of indifference, not appearing to be as shocked as Tybar was, but was still clearly caught off guard by the huge space dedication. From the species entrance table for the space, a strange-looking being approached the pair. Bipedal extended limbs which divided into graspers, obvious sensory apparatus on top with some sort of bio-extrusions appearing to be attached to its top. Greetings and welcome, gentle beings. Welcome to the Terran Exhibition Space. Would you like to have a look around? The strange being gestured with its extended limbs. While the galactic standard sounded almost perfect, their body language was terrible. Tybar skipped over the missteps of body language, enough semi-first encounters by themselves with other species at the conference had led to a sort of personal filter. Most of these other species didn't know or couldn't begin to replicate proper body language. Caesar was far more incensed by the terrible body language, but saw Tybal move to follow this being, and so put it aside for now. Caesar would much rather be at home, working on their own designs, rather than coming and cooing over other designs that had two accidental changes that somehow made the design more desirable to some new part of the conference. Identify yourself, please, Caesar said, somewhat gruffly, followed by the being of Tybar. I am the member of the Terran Confederate greeting staff for this event, the being said. And uh, what is a Tyrain? Tybar asked. We are a new exhibitionary species. We were discovered last solar cycle as part of the Trello expedition, the Terran said, their body language still terrible. 
but not moving. The mispronunciation of their species' name seemed to go right past it, Caesar noticed, although it was highly unlikely that Tybar meant anything by it. For all of their creative genius, Tybar didn't appear to have a single unkind bottle in the whole of their form. So, what unique designs have your species brought that makes you so interesting as to grant you five entire rows? Caesar prompted. The Terran shifted their sensory apparatus to one side, the bioextrusion moving oddly. Is it uncommon for there to be an allotment of such space? The Terran asked. Exceptionally. The normal expedition spaces are other species are typically confined to a much less than a row each, Caesar said, raising themselves up amid. I shall have to make a note of that for future years, the Terran said. Yes, hopefully it wasn't too daunting to drive fill all five rows. Most species would find it a challenge, Caesar rippled. They were enjoying this. Well, it was a challenge. We actually had to organize a competition just to get the best of the best on the show here the Terran said. Caesar paused and ceased rippling. Do you mean that your species actually has more designs than you are able to bring? Tybar was fully rippling and about to begin lubricating the flaws. That is entirely correct, gentle being, the Terran said, appearing to be proud in some regard. No standardized design protocol. How do you ensure design functionality? Caesar asked. That's on the designers, which is to say that it is the responsibility of the designers to ensure functionality, as long as it can be safely operated. We do have safety protocols which dictate certain design limits, but those largely depend on the applications, the Terran said, gesturing to the conference data chips, which would be pre-populated with all of the relevant brochures and documents from the species exhibition. Normally, these chips were the cheapest and smallest available, but to Caesar's eyes, these were longer by a solid talus and shone in the light, marking them as a grade all three above usual. That meant, to Caesar's strained thoughts, these chips must be brimming with design information. Quickly, Caesar took one of the chips and plugged it straight into the conference-issued data pad. Instead of the near-instant leap into a single brochure, it actually took several moments for the whole of the data to be loaded onto the data pad. From there... A fully customized data screen greeted Caesar and Tybar, who was looking around Caesar at the data screen, with menus delineating over a dozen design categories. Tapping one, the menu for fusion reactors expanded and revealed another 30 menu items, components as well as variable size designs and even decorative varieties. How is it possible that one species has so many designs? Would it not be simpler just to standardize all of your designs? Tybar asked. Caesar was surprised. Tybar had asked the question that Caesar had just been forming. Getting all of the Terran designers to accommodate safety standards is uh, difficult enough. Enforcing standard designs beyond that is uh, practically impossible. However, by your question, I am forced to draw the conclusion that this is not the case with other species. Is this correct? The Terran asked, their body language still terrible. Most standardized species have a single set of standardized designs which designers are permitted to build upon and recommend improvements to, Caesar said, still bewildered by the huge number of menu items being shown. Oh, said the Terran. It drooped a bit. After a moment, the Terran perked back up. Well, uh, I do hope you enjoy looking through our exhibitions then. If you require assistance, Terrans who have uh, specialized, but not designers, are available to answer your questions within each segment of our section, the Terran said. 
Many thanks, Tybar said and turned to move off. Caesar was about to follow before turning back to the Terran. Are you aware of speaking body language? Caesar asked. I am, but unfortunately, if you're a Cytocon, Caesar nodded, then I'm afraid we Terrans have internal structures that make it impossible for us to speak your species' body language. Interesting. Based on this statement, I presume it is some manner of rigid structure that you do not have to voluntarily or involuntary control over, Caesar said, glancing onwards and seeing Tybal already walking rapidly to another Terran while gesturing almost wildly at the strange-looking block of metals. That is correct. Please pardon our body language, but we are unable to speak it as you do, the Terran said. Caesar gave the Terran a departing gesture and moved on to catch up with Tybar, who had moved on to the next metal block, with the Terran specialist standing next to him. I feel like I'm back in my first year of design school, Tybar said, veritably collapsing into a pile. It was truly humbling to see that many designs from one species, Caesar agreed, sinking into the matching pile. Not just that, but there's so many variations. You don't know instantly from looking at a given vessel to be able to say that it's a Terran vessel or not. With all those designs, it's practically impossible, Tybar said, clearly wanting to ripple almost out of control, but lacking the energy to do so. And those are just the designs they brought this year. Based on the entrance to Terran, this was but a sampling of their designs, Caesar recalled. I feel uh, inadequate as a designer, seeing all those designs. So many of them are so simple and yet so obvious. Tybar murmured. Just keep in mind that there's still the rest of the conference to view. Caesar mumbled. Dal, the rest of the conference. We're going back to those Terran exhibitions tomorrow and getting more data. This is too interesting to pass up, Tybar said. But... What about the Fregnant Conductors? I believe you were looking forward to seeing how they'd managed an additional 3% efficiency in their shuttle designs, Caesar mentioned, only slightly surprised at Tybar's attitude. 3% is nothing compared to some of the design principles of the Terrans, and tomorrow I need a proper date sleep for note-taking. The following conference, every non-Terran was given a copy of Terran design principles and an examination by Professor Tybar and Caesar of Canulan Higher Learning. The opening of the document reads as follows. Pretend you knew nothing about species' unique design principles, everything, from the Franklin Conductor design to the Bruthen Hypercruiser standards. Now be faced with Terran design principles, the first and only rule of which is safety. There are no other design rules for Terrans and no higher standards, only safety. What this means is that Terran designs are more varied than a hundred species' unique design principles, and as a part of this text, we will explore the key areas of Terran design principles as they relate to the best designs that have been shown as a part of the Interstellar Design Consortium Conference. Hopefully, you're prepared to be confused, annoyed, and even angered. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1300. Story number two. Flesh Before Steel. Written by Lager CZE. It is said that a human army is like a wave of steel, cold and feeling and grinding ever onwards, and it sows death and reaps destruction, leaving nothing but ashes and ruin in its wake. If you fight the humans, chances are you won't even see the faces of their soldiers until the battle has long passed. What you'll quickly become accustomed to, however, will be the silhouettes of those countless tanks and mechs appearing over the horizon, 
kicking up dust as the landscape is crushed under their weight. There is no human screaming, no barked orders, merely the rumble of engines, on occasion drowned out by the explosions and whizzing shells. For some, the sight alone is too much to bear. An age has passed since the human troopers led charges. Today, their tasks are done by AI and robots, mechanical tools of a greater whole. A soldier in a human army is more likely to die as a result of some automaton than a decision to pull the trigger made by a human. The humans always reason differently when presented with this. They are just as likely to claim that it is more efficient to have a machine perform the tasks of the infantrymen as they are to claim to protect the minds and hearts of humans from the horrors of the battlefield. But, above all else, they will refer you to the first and oldest rule of combat as stated by their officer manual, flesh before steel. There is no concept more sacred to a human war machine. Wherever you engage them, whatever your plans and your situation, they will always protect flesh with steel, and the more steel they can put between you and their flesh, the better. They will display endless creativity and use all resources available to protect even a single human from so much as a bruise. If you fire at a building containing real humans, real flesh and bone, you'll be met with a display of force none in the galaxy can match. Forget the warrior skills of the Mactark or the Zai's perfect intelligence. If you try so much as touch a hair on a human, you will become the target of a million automatons and crush you under their treads if it's that's what it takes to stop you from firing again. In one spectacular example, the human fleet sacrificed an entire AI-populated battleship and its support squadron in an attempt to stop an accidental kinetic bombardment of an area that they were evacuating a single human from. Said human was a civilian explorer who was, according to their own law, trespassing inside the exclusion zone, and therefore a criminal. The human fleet considers this feat not only perfectly acceptable, but as awarded the AI that made this decision, an award for its performance on the field of battle. This attitude is widely considered to be a mild form of insanity by the galactic community, a feeble attempt at fighting wars in a sanitary fashion. You yourself may be convinced of this very same thing at this moment. But the humans are our allies, so I implore you to listen to me when I say that it might just be their biggest strength. It is widely known the human homeworld is unique. It is an environment lush with life, a place where the humans could evolve in relative ease. They are physically weak, never having faced the challenges our people did to simply survive. They live in a true garden. A place where even the harshest biomes can be tamed by fragile humans. It is a place so full of species that they've taken to preserving them all, even those no longer able to keep up with evolution. It is a human custom to protect the weakest link, if nothing else. To the most galactic armies, a single soldier costs less than the creation of a cruise missile. To a human... A hundred cruise missiles don't even begin to come close to the price of a sentient. A battleship, a complete with its magnetic accelerators and fusion cores, does not begin to come close. They'll fight tooth and nail to protect their right to weakness, and if they have to craft a fire that consumes the rest of the galaxy to do so, they might just do that too. 
That is why we let their automatons be the vanguard for every assault. With every battle, they're pleased to let the machines fight instead of searching for the glory of combat becomes more and more urgent. For the longest time, I remained unfounded at their lack of will to fight, and how they cowered and sent machines, reasoning that they can replace them easier than they could replace one of their own. But now, as we sit here, celebrating another battle won, there's a hundred human engineers, a hundred beings of flesh and bone, working around the clock to rescue the survivors from the wrecks we just made of those flog warships. Human women and women, risking their lives to save beings who would gladly try and kill them if they get a chance, in an attempt to avenge their ships. They're out there, with nothing but cutters, suits, and their fragile bodies, slaving away to save a few more sentient creatures. There are a few insignificant specks of stardust fighting to save their enemies. And I think finally I understand what they value enough to die for. End of story. Story number one. Repayment of a debt. Written by Nerdy White Male. A man struggled up the rail. The pack on his back was both heavy and unwieldy. Hello up there, can you... He called out to the figure chained to the cliff. The titan looked up wearily. He didn't get much rest. But he got even less company. The valley he was in was only one entrance, and it was hidden by olive trees and scrubbed. Yes, human, I can hear you, although your accent is strange. Have you come to mock me? Did Zeus send you to learn what happens when others oppose his will? The man staggered up the nearby boulder and set his pack down with a sigh. No, um, I saw you up there last month while fighting the wildfires. I couldn't do anything but mark my map. Uh, Zeus didn't send me, um, uh, I sent me. Uh, no man should have to suffer, well, as you do. Uh, it's Prometheus, right? Prometheus looked down at the human. He was taller than the humans he remembered, but the face was the same, and his skin the same color as olives of the human that he helped create. Yes, I am Prometheus. Please sit and talk. Tell me of what has happened outside this valley. The eagles shall be here in a few hours. I'm afraid our conversation will be at an end when they arrive. He nodded at the pile of bones that lay at the base of the cliff. Mostly animals, but there had been other humans who had discovered him and been around when the eagles arrived. The man grunted and pulled out a chisel and a hammer from his pack. Just let me know before they get you. My name's Antioch. And can you move your leg a bit? I just want to have a whack at those chains. As Antioch started looking over the binding, he started telling the bound titan of the fall of the Greek cities and the rise of Rome. Prometheus sighed. Humans had tried to free before. Hephaestus forged those. You have no hope, Antioch. The man held up the chisel. This is what you gave us. A hardened steel tool. We took fire and heated iron, and we added some carbon and sharpened it. Then we cooled it just right. This, he tapped the chain, is just iron. A lot of it, but nothing more than iron. And with that, the Antioch started hammering on the shackles that bound the titan. Antioch was working on Prometheus's left arm and was telling him about the fall of Rome when the titan next spoke. 
The eagles are coming. You must run, friend Antioch. There is a cave down to the left trail others have sheltered in. Please go quickly. If they see you, they will surely kill you. Antioch dropped his tools and scrambled back down the cliff to his back. Don't worry. Tool steel is not the only thing that we've created with your gift, he said as he struggled to get the heavy backpack on. Prometheus wept as his friend did not run. Please go. The eagles are almost here. You are brave, but my arms are still bound. I cannot defend you. Antioch just smiled up at humanity's first friend as he flipped the visor of his helmet down and lit the pilot light on his flamethrower. Don't worry, you gave us fire, but I'm more than happy to give a little back. The eagles screamed as they burned. Prometheus still wept, but for the first time in over 8,000 years, they were tears of joy. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1301 The One Who Smells Like Flowers Written by Reddit Aggie I've been with many of the tall ones for years, and still have not learned the language. At best, I've learned a few names and statements. That's so hard. My mouth doesn't move like this, and the words and ideas are so complex, I can't hold them in my mind for more than a few seconds. They eventually got tired of repeating everything time and time again, accepted my limitations, and we have settled into a happy routine. We're traveling in our home through the great dark. There is no light outside, but there are small lights here and there in little spots that make me think that I should blink when I look at them. The lights change size often. For years, we have moved from one of these lights to another. We stop at various places outside to take things out of our home and bring new things into our home. There is always a lot of excitement when this happens. On one of these stops, the one who smells like flowers bowed me and saved me. I was very young then. I don't remember much before she found me, but I remember being lost. I remember being hungry. And I remember her smell. She brought me back here to where she lived with the one who smells like iron and the other tall ones who look like them. They've been together for a very long time. I know this because their scents are intermingled into everything in their rooms. The one who smells like flowers is kind. She knows I can't understand her very well and talks to me gently. The one who smells like iron is not unkind, but I can tell he doesn't like me and thinks I'm mostly in the way. If it wasn't that one who smells like flowers liked me, I don't think that he would let me stay here. That's okay. I only like him because he belongs to the one who smells like flowers as well. I wouldn't say I liked the one who smells new at first. She was tiny and simply appeared one day. She was very loud and not very helpful. She took much time from the one who smells like flowers, and for a time, I was forgotten. But at some point, the one who smells new found me and, because she was not very helpful, had a lot of time to play with me. We became friends. She has talked to me for years, and I've spoken to her. I think she understands me as well as I understand her, which is not at all, but it's been a thrill getting to know her. My thoughts are interrupted by the buzzing noise that makes the tall ones anxious. I can hear voices shouting throughout our home. 
I recognize them all. Whenever the tall ones get worried, I like to find the one who smells like flowers and be near her. None of my presence seems to calm her. She should be easy to find, as always. However, before I can get there, the loudest noise I've ever heard shakes our home. When the screeching and metal noises end, I hear new noises and more shouting for the tall ones. There is screaming and sounds of pain. I step up my search for this one who smells like flowers. There are new smells everywhere as I move through the halls of our home. Some of these new scents smell like burnt sand. Others smell like metal and sparks. Others... Hmm. Some smell like the tall ones when they injure themselves. I focus on the one who smells like flowers and race to find her. As I round the corner at a run, I see one of the new smells standing over the one who smells like flowers. He's a large metal stick raised and is laughing at her. She looks so frightened. Without breaking my stride, I launch myself at the new smell. I know the one who smells like flowers says I should not bite. But for some reason, I don't care and bite this one who smells like burnt sand harder than I have ever bitten anything in my life. There is a crunching and the one of those new screams I heard earlier. The new smell topples over my momentum and we wrestle on the floor like I used to with the one who smells like iron. But I know this game is more serious. I hang on, grinding my teeth and savoring the crunch every time I pinch harder. The one who smells like burnt sand would scream more, but the one who smells like flowers is up beside us with a stick and, screaming, pushes it through him. He twitches a few times and is still. I let him go and look up the one who smells like flowers. She is injured, but seems okay. She bends down to touch me, but freezes. She looks frightened, and I can hear the thumping in her chest get faster. This must be serious. I look around and listen for more new smells, but can't find any around us. She stops me and places a hand on the side of my face. She looks at me in the eyes and only says, Sadie, find Sarah. The one that smells new. I'd forgotten about her in my haste to find the one that smells like flowers. The one that smells new wanders all over our home. Her scent is everywhere. I race back towards where we all sleep. I hear the one who smells new scream in another part of our home as I am running. The sound appears to be coming from where she goes with the other tall ones every day. I push myself even faster, running past tall ones and other new smells as I race towards the one who smells new. I round the corner and see a tall one lying on the floor. They aren't moving. Two new smells are herding the small tall one into a corner. I announce myself as I launch towards the smaller of the new smells. He spins towards me, which lines up his neck with my attack. My bite binds his neck, and my momentum carries me past him. His neck comes with me. I scramble to my feet and buy myself between the new smell and smells like metal and sparks and the small tall ones. I shout at him to leave the small tall ones alone. The one who smells new tries to move beside me, but I stay between her and the new smells. I shout at the one who smells like metal and smocks again and again. He seems wary of me. He looks at his companion and back at me. He pulls a shiny stick from his belt, like the one who smells like burnt sand tried to use against the one who smells like flowers. He lunges at me, and I dodge away from him. He's large, but much slower than the tall ones I usually play with. He lunges again, swinging his stick, and it misses. But I don't.
my teeth, and I shake my body with a fury that I can muster. He swings me around into a wall. I feel a sharp pain in my leg, but I won't let go. He slams me into the ground, but I won't let go. He punches with the other three arms again and again, but I won't let go. The one who smells new is here, thinking of her gives me strength, and with the greatest shake I can muster, I push away from the one who smells like metal and sparks. There's a crunching and a tearing sound, and his arm comes with me. The one who smells like metal and sparks stares at me. I'm having trouble standing. I can hear the one who smells new crying, and it makes me angry. I shout again and again. Then there's a loud noise that makes me flinch. The one who smells like metal and sparks turns slowly and falls. As he does, I see the one who smells like iron standing behind him with some other tall ones. The one who smells new rushes over to him and then pulls him towards me. Somehow, I'm lying down. I don't remember lying down. The one who smells new is crying more now. I don't know why or how to help her. I kiss her hand. The one who smells like iron seems upset. His face is flat and his eyes are as hard as steel. I'm afraid that I've done something wrong. He drops to his knees beside me, and in a single drop of water runs from his eye. I've never seen him do this before. The one who smells new does this when she is sad. Is the one who smells like iron sad? I want to kiss his hand as well, and let him know that I'm sorry if I didn't help enough. But I can't lift my head, and things I see and smell are getting farther away. I wish that I could see the one who smells like flowers again. The one who smells new and I are watching tall ones on her small device. She enjoys this. I still can't understand anything the tall ones are saying. I wonder if I ever will. But I still enjoy being beside her. The one who smells like flowers calls out, and I hear her say something I recognized. Dinner. The one who smells new jumps up and races towards the other room. I'm still slower than her. Ever since the new smells were here, parts of my body don't work the way they used to. Particularly my back leg. It's encased in something hard and tastes awful. I hobble after the one that smells new and enter the room, just as the one that smells like iron and several other tall ones enter the hall. They stop when they see me. There is a new smell with them, and I don't know it. The one who smells like iron walks over to me and kneels in front of me, talking to me gently. I don't know what he's saying, but he, he's been like this recently. He talks to me now like the one who smells like flowers, and his eyes are softer. He walks over to the table and unwraps something, talking to me all the time. I know this because he keeps saying Sadie, repeatedly, while he's busy. Some of the other tall ones gather around me, talking to me, but I don't recognize their words. They all seem happy with me, though. I'd like this better than how they usually treat me, as though I'm in their way. The one that smells like iron gets a bowl and they put my food in. But instead of my usual dinner, he places something into the bowl that smells like, uh, I don't know. I'm not sure I've ever smelled something this wonderful. The one that smells like iron is still talking. 
I recognize some of the words here and there because he keeps saying Erica and Sarah. He seems happy, so I'm glad for him. The other tall ones seem happy as well. He blazes the bowl in front of me, and a wondrous new smell is nearly overpowering. The one that smells like iron kneels down and scratches the side of my head. I still don't understand what he's saying, but when he points to my bowl, I think I'll remember this word forever. He simply says, Steak. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1302 Drone Swarm, written by Hamster IV. 200 standard cycles ago, we sent a scientific probe to a planet with a thriving ecosystem. We had probed this planet several times over the preceding millennia, observing the native flora and fauna, looking for signs of advanced civilization, potential brothers for our galactic community. Inevitably, these probes would be destroyed by weather, or by the creatures that they were sent to observe. Yet, the probe in question met its end far sooner than expected. Upon orbital approach, the probe reported great swaths of land were artificially illuminated on the night side of the planet, a sure sign that the native species were able to store chemical or electrical energy and release it as light. Artificial light alone was not proof of advanced civilizations, but it was a strong indicator. The text manning the probe passed the information on to the superiors who would gather the linguistics, diplomats, and philosophers for a potential first contact encounter. The gathering of the first contact experts was ultimately unnecessary. As the probe deaccelerated in the planet's atmosphere, it was bombarded with radiation and repeatedly buzzed by fast-moving atmospheric vehicles. The technicians tried to capture as much data from the probe as possible, but the sensors were overwhelmed by the radiation, and the close proximity of other atmospheric craft introduced fatal variables into the probe's automated landing procedure. Instead of landing gently, the probe came crashing down in the middle of a major population center. The last images the probe sent back to its operators were the tall bipedal creatures climbing over its ruined hull, pulling apart the wreckage and examining the various components inside. The atmosphere in the command center was one of confusion and shock. The last probe, dispatched just 5,000 standard cycles ago, had reported no signs of advanced energy manipulation, much less high-altitude flight. The tall bipedal creature matched a species barely out of the Stone Age. These creatures self-identified as human and had advanced more in 5,000 cycles than most species did in a million. A new set of probes was quickly dispatched to make formal contact with the new species. But it would be 50 cycles before they would arrive at the human's homeworld. The lost probe contained no FTL or power plant, so it was reasoned that the humans would gain little from exploiting its wreckage. Oh, how wrong we were. When our follow-up probes established orbit over human's homeworld, we found that there had been a great deal of change. Several of the population centers that once illuminated the night sky were dark. Buildings had collapsed and streets were filled with rubble. We watched from orbit as tiny objects zipped through the wreckage. They exchanged energy pulses, lashing each other with bladed implements and exploded in cascades of broken masonry. The humans apparently found this wanton destruction a source of great amusement. They still were using the electromagnetic spectrum for mass communication broadcasts, and our probes tapped into the data streams. They showed a ground-level view of the carnage and destruction. 
They showed teams of humans in a room illuminated by the glow of multiple video displays, weeping or making violent declarations of joy when something big exploded. This wasn't just an isolated broadcast. Thousands of audio-video feeds from around the planet showed the humans making war, celebrating war, and dissecting war. Never had the sociologists encountered a species so enamored by violent conflict. It would take years to analyze the data our probes were gathering, but before the full planetary cycle passed, it became apparent that the humans were aware of our probe's orbital presence and were taking steps to capture one. In a panic, the mission commander activated emergency recall procedures, and the probes quickly extracted by FDL-capable craft. Teams of analysts went to work on the data that the probes had collected. They concluded that the humans were in the fifth age of technological progression when we lost our first probe. They had the resources to feed and shelter their population several times over, yet still engaged in physical conflict as if there was still resource scarcity. At that time, human conflict involved a human establishing a line of sight with an opponent and exchanging chemical-propelled bits of metal. The process was extremely hazardous to all parties involved. In fact, conflict and the percentage of the population trained for conflict had been on a downward trend for the last past hundred cycles. A few of the more advanced human factions tried to maintain their power and prestige through remote weapons known as drones. The pre-contact drones were limited by onboard energy capacity, the quality of data that could be sent long-range through the electromagnetic spectrum, and the danger of hostile electromagnetic interference. Unfortunately, our lost probe contained an FTL point-to-point communication system that in one step solved all the limitations of humanity's pre-contact drones. At a time in the societal development where conflict was supposed to be subsiding, we had handed the humans a key to the consequence-free violence. It hadn't even taken the humans a whole generation to adapt. Great swaths of their population had enlisted in their military the day the physical exertion and danger ceased being a part of a warrior's life. Their leaders encouraged us, making celebrities out of the most ruthlessly efficient pilots and broadcasting their accomplishments to people hungry for conflict but averse to risk. In the vast sea of time, we have never witnessed a sentient species behave with such a wanton aggression. It was worse than the animalistic struggle for food and resources. These humans would battle for pride, for pleasure, and even for sport. The Great Council debated for the next seven cycles. Experts from all fields gave testimony on their analysis of humans. It was determined that we could not peacefully coexist in the same galaxy as such an aggressive species. The decision was made to assemble an extermination fleet. Twice before, the Council had authorized such drastic action. Twice before, had warship was from every Council race been gathered together to crush a potentially dangerous civilization in its cradle. It was important to the Council that no member hands be unbloodied from the act of genocide. No one would be allowed to take a moral high ground on such an abominable action. It would take time for the extermination fleet to be assembled, and the Council's peacekeeping fleet would be employed to quarantine the humans in the home star system. The sudden appearance and disappearance of our second wave of probes must have alerted the humans to the possibilities of FTL travel. They set about testing the limits of the Council's quarantine. Ship after ship randomly jumped into vast emptiness of interstellar space. 
Our sensors and weapons were far more advanced than the early human vessels. We destroyed each human-built contraption as fast as we could to prevent humans from mastering the art of FTR travel. Any sane race would have abandoned the FTR program after losing so many prototypes. Unfortunately, sanity was in short supply amongst the human population. They continued to probe our quarantine, reaching further, reacting faster, and eventually engaging the ship's scent to enforce the quarantine. Eighty standard cycles later, after initiating the quarantine, the Council lost contact with the peacekeeping ship Verdant Skies. It had been dispatched to destroy a human ship breaking quarantine, the fifth in its twenty-cycle tour of duty. It initially looked like a textbook interception, the Verdant Skies rail cannon shattering the hull of fragile human vessel in extreme range. As the Verdant Skies moved closer to inspect the wreckage, several pieces of randomly drifting debris suddenly altered course and plowed into the hull of the Verdant Skies. Internal log records, a dreadful buzzing noise as tiny craft propelled by human micromotors swarmed through the ship. The crew fought with a great bravery, but were cut down one by one. Their weapons and reflexes unable to counter the skill of the human drone operators. Within minutes, the only peacekeeper alive with a small maintenance team clustered inside a coffin-like crawl space leading to the main reactor. Those brave survivors activated the self-destruct, preventing the ship from falling into human hands. Our fleet commanders were in shock. Never had they lost a ship to such precise and ruthless boarding action. New rules of engagement were drafted. Peacekeeper interception missions had to be dispatched in pairs and followed strict operating procedures to avoid similar traps. The precautions hindered the peacekeeper's effectiveness, and the human ships pushed farther out than the quarantine zone. The civilizations closest to the quarantine zone demanded that the extermination fleet be launched early. But the Council was adamant that the last ships from the member race on the far side of the galaxy be allowed to join before the ship could embark on its mission. The humans, on the other hand, did not stand a formality. One day a human ship appeared in orbit over Sirius Prime, one of the five staging areas for the extermination fleet. The ships in orbit were quick to dispatch it, but were unable to disable all the drone pods before they hit the atmosphere. The human drone operators weren't crafty. Instead of embarking on killing spree the moment they made contact with our forces, they dispersed into the uninhabitable regions of the planet. Some were destroyed by planet-side forces, but many managed to disappear into the wilderness. The following months saw more human ships arrive above Sirius Prime. They jumped in with a frightening accuracy, sometimes less than a kilometer from a ship that they were targeting. Time after time, the drone swarms would be burning through the hull of their victim by the time the rest of the fleet could respond. It became too dangerous to keep a regular orbital patterns around Sirius Prime, Ships had to make random course alterations and leave gaps in the orbital coverage. Into these gaps, the humans began jumping atmosphere-capable drone pods. Planet-side drone swarms wreaked havoc on defensive forces. We tried to copy the humans' designs and tactics, but with several generations' head start and a mental propensity towards sudden and decisive violence, there was nothing that we could do to keep up. Reinforcements from other extermination fleet staging areas were brought in, but it was too little, too late. In less than two standard cycles, Sirius Prime had to be abandoned. This time, there was no question if the humans had managed to secure our technology. 
A hundred ships of the extermination fleet lay broken in orbit. Orbital scans indicated the fleet's planet-side support teams were captured and herded into dead cities. The Council was forced to abandon over a million fleet support personnel when Sirius Prime fell. If less than 1% could be convinced to share their technical expertise, our quarantine would have been for nothing. Now we face hostile empire within our galaxy, one who has completely rewritten the rules of infantry combat after acquiring a single science probe's communication unit. I fear what they will do with the plunder of Sirius Prime. I fear the humans. Councilman Blacked of our brief history of the human crisis. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1303. Perfectly Legal, written by Rosie013. Champion Nudruk was furious. At least, that was what he was feeling now that the surprise and the confusion were wearing off. It had been a month of unpleasant surprises, and now that he knew exactly what the damned villain was planning, it was, should have been good news and time to take action. Instead, he couldn't sleep as his mind raced around an impotent fury. With a bone-deep sigh, he climbed from his simple straw pallet and adjusted his sackcloth robes to better ward off the late evening chill. He spared a longing glance at his ornate Templar armor, hanging on his armor rack in the corner of the simple cell. Somehow, even in the darkness, its golden marble finish seemed to shimmer, to call out to him in his lord's name. Not today, old friend. There were a few about this hour, and it took no time at all to cross the large courtyard and enter the Order's main shrine to the God of Light and Law. Although he was alone with his thoughts, candles burned low, indicating the devout worshippers were always somewhere nearby. Slowly, Nidrug lowered himself to a meditative kneeling position to pray for guidance and reflect on recent events. It wasn't that rare for strangers to show up in the kingdom of Einturb, given that they bordered the very edge of the known world. Wanderers, monsters, and general strangeness was almost all there was out in the unknowable badlands. It was why his deity had chosen this kingdom to host his warrior Templar's main fortress monastery, after all. About a month ago, a stranger dressed unusually had showed up in the smaller cities and requested entrance. Naturally, the guards had been wary and questioned his intent in detail, learning that he had traveled to seek knowledge from a small mage's college in the city. They allowed him passage, and surreptitiously followed him to make sure that was where he went. The unknown stranger was good at his word, and made no fuss as the guards' report went. The first champion a drug knew of the stranger was when an urgent call for help arrived from the college. He instantly knew whatever it was would be serious. The temple's followers of light and the college's followers of mystery were, uh, not exactly friends. To be invited into their grounds was almost unheard of. In full plate, with four others in his order in tow, Nidrug had a haste to confront whatever the damn mages had accidentally done, only to probably receive a placid and cooperative prisoner already in ruin-inscribed chains. The stranger was human. It was rare for humans to be able to practice magic. They were the least magical talented race in the world. 
It only took one whispered word from the head mage to explain why he was bound. Necromancer. He had been preparing to behead the wretch then and there when the prisoner spoke up, calmly requesting to speak to the magistrate of the state. Off-put by the request, he had hesitated. Suspicious. This had to be a trap of some sort. No one would volunteer to be burnt alive instead of simply beheading. But law was law. Belatedly, Nardrug realized how close he had come to breaking the law. A Templar of the Light couldn't summarily execute anyone who was not an immediate threat, which the calm human wasn't. So far, he would take the necromancer straight there, under heavy guard and his personal watch the whole time. The court had been a rushed affair at first. No one was keen to delay a necromancer's true death, but there was a hitch. The human pointed out that while the necromancy was uh, distasteful, it wasn't actually outright illegal in the kingdom of Einturb. And then the human had an excuse for everything under the sun and more. Yes, there was a major undead war in the kingdom's history, but those sorcerers were executed for attempting to overthrow the kingdom, not actually necromancy itself. Yes, desecrating the dead was a crime, but a crime committed against the body's living relatives. Reanimating unclaimed bodies and purchased bodies from families that could only afford a pauper's grave anyway was technically not illegal. Yes, you need to be formally recognized by the Mage Circle to practice sorcery and magic in the kingdom, but had been recognized and allowed entry to the local college, despite since being forcibly removed. On and on it went, until despite everyone's frustrations, the magistrate had the necromancer released. There was nothing the temple could do despite the wrongness of this action. So, at his order's rotation of temples, was set up to watch the scum wonder of my homelands, ready for the moment that he was a highest breath out of line. There would be no magistrate this time around, just a swift swing of the sword and the templar's holy work done. It didn't take long to realize that there were other groups doing something similar. The necromancer almost had an entourage of guards, spies, and other observers for two weeks as he sauntered about the city, as he did his business. Even the college spared no expense, having mages on hand to counter the human should he become nasty. But the other sabaton never dropped. The human was peaceful, if a little unnerving. Many citizens he tried to have some business with rejected him outright, not wanting his attention or that of his watchful, heavily armed entourage. Just when everyone was starting to adjust to his unwelcome presence, the necromancer did the least expecting thing of all. He opened a business, specifically a courier business, overnight deliveries across the entire kingdom. What a ridiculous business idea! No one would want to work with a necromancer. No one would work for him. No one could cross the entire kingdom overnight. It would take three days border to border at least. And for another few days, so Nidrug's prediction seemed to be true. No one wanted anything to do with the human. Then a desperate caravan leader broke the taboo, desperate to meet his own deadlines. The wicked necromancer's plans became clear that night, as the undead could labor and travel without rest, and for an even better price than any living. Quickly, the competition was out of business or pushed out of town, and who would be a fool enough to try and rob the undead? Local bandits soon left in search of easier pickings. 
Without bandits, what kind of traveler needed to hire a guard? The mercenary companies left the kingdom looking for work elsewhere, which left room for new businesses to start doing what little guard work remained. The new business was very successful too, and who wouldn't want guards that didn't sleep or rest or get distracted while on duty? The undead made perfect guards. There was even an option to pay a little extra for one that didn't smell, but an option with living mercenaries. Champion Nudrug was furious, and the others of the Order felt the same way. Their other duties had not stopped, and they might not be able to protect the kingdom from whatever the Badlands threw at them if they always had to watch their backs, not to mention the manpower spent. He had requested an audience with the magistrate, and demanded that the dangerous necromancer be thrown out of the kingdom for interfering with so many other people's business. But the official had declined. Business was business, and competition was fair play. The fact that the magistrate had just bought a new estate and built it in a tenth of the time it usually took, from materials sourced at a cost of the tenth of what it usually would be needed to acquire, was besides the point. These new businesses were good for the kingdom. They were help keep the free market competitive. To make matters worse, last night the champion had learned that the scheming human had made a formal bid to replace the king's common soldiery with his own, throw several business intermediaries, of course. That was why he was here, praying in the pre-dawn hours of the morning to his god of light and law. The dampness of the silent tears stained his strained composure. For the first time in his purposeful life, no drug the champion of the order didn't know what to do. The champion of light and law had to uphold those virtues. Never before had those virtues been at odds. The monastery had stood its ground, halting any and all evil from the Badlands for centuries, and nothing, nothing in all of its history had faced a foe so cunning and deviant. Because the human necromancer was slowly taking over the kingdom, and it was all perfectly legal. End of story. And that, my friends, is the end of this podcast version of Tales from Outer Space. I hope that you enjoyed. Please check the links down below if you wish to support any of the authors that wrote any of the stories in this episode. There are also links if you wish to support this channel. And I'll see you all in the next episode. And until then, I hope that you have a fantastic one. Cheers.